people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, are Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. And welcome to Through the Acom Lens, a look at the Beatles on film. I'm Phoebe, and today I welcome my friend Kristen. She's a film professor from California, and she's joining me to discuss two fantastic films, A Hard Day's Night and The Beatles' First U.S. Visit. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Phoebe? I'm doing well. Um, are you excited to talk about these movies today? I'm super excited because... As you know, I had never seen any of the Beatles films. I still, these are the only films that I've seen. I've never seen Help or Yellow Submarine. I, I don't know how I've just managed to miss all of them. Um, because I'm this, a Beatles fan uh, and, I, and I'm a film fan. It is frankly unbelievable that you've never seen a Beatles film. But <laughs> I've so seen, this is what you said. I've seen <laughs> clips. You know, I've seen bits and pieces and I kind of get the gist of them. But I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen any of them in their entirety. And I mean, I'm a Beatles fan. I think like a lot of people are Beatles fans. Like I've heard all the yeah. records and, you know, but I don't know Ringo's shoe size. I, you know, <laughs> like I couldn't tell you yeah. who wears boxers and who wears briefs. Like I, I haven't got into that <laughs> right, right. level of fandom, but I mean, I love the Beatles and I, you know, I know a right. decent amount. Like I've read books on them. So like... I definitely am a fan, but particularly a hard day's night. It is so so crazy to me that you've never seen it. Yeah, it's crazy but to you, me too. And again, I've seen bits, but I was surprised at how little of it I had seen. Like I had seen uh, the opening sequence before, where the boys are being chased by all the girls. Um, yeah, but that's it. I really didn't know what to expect. I tried not to really read anything about it before uh, watching it so I could kind of go in fresh and um, it was not at all what I expected. Well, this is a, such a treat then. I'm so glad that I was able to bring them into your life. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and get into it. Yeah. We're going to start with A Hard Day's Night. Okay. Then we'll discuss First U.S. Visit and then we will have a discussion about comparing and contrasting the two of them. Fantastic. Okay, ready? Oh, they're running. All right, so Hard Day's Night, um, I'm just going to give a little background, their history, or as RuPaul would say, herstory. <laughs> I'll give, give a little herstory awesome. on Hard Day's Night. So um, Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, got a three-picture deal with United Artists. They hired Walter Shenson as the producer, and he spoke with John Lennon and said, well, I need six new songs for the film. And... He said, do you have any thoughts on what we 
should call it. John suggested A Hard Day's Night, which was a cute little malapropism of Ringo's. It's catchy, it's sort of evocative. You, you kind of know what it means, but you kind of don't. And sort of kind of, you know, encapsulated their the madness of Beatlemania. So they said, okay, that's great. We'll call the film A Hard Day's Night. And then Walter Shenson said, um, can you write a song with that title? And <laughs> so John and Paul then proceeded that evening to write A Hard Day's Night. From that, they hired Dick Lester, who was known to the Beatles for his work with the Goons, and writer Alan Owen. Dick Lester and Alan Owen went to Paris shortly thereafter and sort of shadowed the Beatles. Walter Shenson, Alan Owen, and I went to Paris to the George Sank, where they were doing one of their first concerts in Paris, and watched them in their hotel rooms, in their cars, backstage, doing interviews. And in essence, the film wrote itself. This is the first weekend I got to know them, and this was the first put-down I got. It was wonderful, because I arrived at the hotel in Grafton Street, went upstairs, and I was parched. I really needed a, a beer, very badly. So I said to Paul, um, Paul, um, is there any uh, chance of a beer? And he said, oh, oh, you want a beer, do you? Eh? Oh, no, he wants a beer. And Ringo said, oh, does he want a beer? And George said, hey, well, you would, wouldn't he? And so and so. And then he picked up the phone and he said, excuse me, room service, could you send, what sort of a beer do you want, Alan? And I said, a phoenix. All right. Could you send up a phoenix beer, please, and four large scotches and four cokes? <laughs> and that was, from that moment on, I knew I was, going, I was in for put-downs. So then he went back to his office or whatever, wrote a script based on the vibe that he got off of them. They shot the film in March and it was on the screen by July of 1964. You haven't seen anything else by Dick Lester, have you? I haven't. Have you? No, well, no, that's not true. I've seen a funny thing happen on the way to the forum, so I don't know if that really counts. It's, it's more mainstream than a lot of the other stuff that he did. So Dick Lester described himself as a kick, bollock, and scramble man. <laughs> <laughs> he said that he didn't really block them too much. Like, he kind of just followed them around so that they weren't overly concerned with where they were going. And he said he really never gave them any marks to hit. Yeah, and you can see, you know, a lot of what I read talked about his, how he's primarily influenced by two things, by direct cinema and by French New Wave. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you can see those fingerprints all over A Hard Day's Night, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Just the whole direct cinema movement that really takes off after World War II with the portable cameras and just sort of being in the action. And, you know, obviously we'll talk more about that with the Males' film. But, um, you know, that he's really trying to uh, follow the Beatles around and not um, intervene too much, which is a weird yeah. thing to say because it's a scripted narrative film. In fact, it's interesting yeah. because... For some reason, I had it in my head that A Hard Day's Night was a documentary, or at least that it was, like, documentary-ish. You know, like it was maybe not a full-on documentary, but at least kind of documentary adjacent. And when I watched it, it was like, this is not a documentary. This is, yeah, like, right, right. This is a narrative film with screenwriters. And, like, you know, this is just yes. a, this is a movie. It's a narrative film. Um but you can really see kind of the, you know, that documentary lineage that, like, Lester clearly yeah. 
uh, took those those filming techniques with um, kind of capturing things as they happen and letting uh, things play out, but obviously in a scripted manner. And so it's a, like a really interesting, okay. you know, it's not a mockumentary, obviously, because that calls to mind like Christopher Guest and Spinal Tap and whatnot. But, right, right, right. But for sure, like he... Um, was definitely influenced by documentary and also by new wave by just kind of that raw aesthetic, you know, the choice to shoot in black and white. Um, and, uh, you know, just kind of let things play out on screen and, and some of the scenes don't necessarily yeah. have a lot of like dramatic shape to them. Um, right. I'm trying to remember now, I don't think that there's a lot of, or maybe any non diegetic music like instrumental music that's not the Beatles right like I don't think there's any background music that isn't the Beatles songs which you know is another break from narrative film so it's yeah it's like he's definitely drawing from documentary a lot in this film yeah and I have seen it re referred to um not obviously not at the time but um I've like when I was trying to pull material for this episode of the podcast mm -hmm. Um, I think even HBO referred to it as a mockumentary. Right. <laughs> like, like, I don't think you know what that word means. It is definitely not a mockumentary. Yeah, because they're not even, like, a, a mockumentary, again, like Spinal Tap or something like that, is something where... It's a fake documentary. A fake documentary. This is not... This is, yeah, not, this is not... It's not even... A satire of a documentary. Yeah, it's not even trying to pretend that it's a documentary. It's not parodying yeah. documentary. It has nothing to do with documentary... Uh, right, narrative wise, right. you know, like stylistically, yeah, but narrative wise, it has nothing to do with that. Right. And like you said, to me, it feels more, more new wave than it feels yeah. like a, like a documentary. I mean, it's got fictional characters and yeah, there's a definite plot. There's a definite three act structure. Like it's, it's just, it's a narrative film. Um, and even like the idea of following them through this one day, like that's not something that would be specific to documentary and it's not something that's like unheard of in Hollywood or in, you know, in mainstream narrative films. So like even that uh, conceit of following this, these people in the course of one day doesn't, you know, s label it as documentary yeah. in any way. So that's kind of interesting. Like it's probably closer to a musical, honestly. It is a musical. Like it is literally yeah. a, like that's the genre it is because it's, I mean, it, it has, has a different sensibility, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, than a typical or whatever the musicals we had been used to seeing. Yeah, it's point. not the Sound of Music, right? Yeah, but right. it is certainly it's a musical film. It's a film with you know musical performance. It's a musical film in the same way like the new A Star Is Born is a musical, right? It's a musical film where the musical sequences are all in the context of performance. But that's still a musical. It's just a, a specific uh, subgenre. Okay. I have a fun anecdote, uh, like a fun little trivia that I wanted to share. Um, I thought this was very cute. You know, the romp in the middle of the field yes. to, where this playing can't buy me love. Yes. All right. That was, I guess, sort of largely spontaneous. But they had a helicopter for, for whatever reason, like it was left over. <laughs> And so they were like, let's take advantage of the helicopter, right? as you would imagine, right? <laughs> so they got in the helicopter, and the cameraman told the story of, like, he was hanging out, 
you know, the, of the end of it or whatever, as it was lifting off and he was shooting the Beatles running around, but his battery was dying, oh, no. which is why the film came speeded up only because the battery was slowly. So all of a sudden, you know, you're getting like 18 frames per second. Oh, that's so funny. Isn't that, isn't that cute? Yeah. And then when they looked at the rushes, um, Dick Lester was like, you're a genius. <laughs> He's like, that's beautiful. Let's go in, and shoot more of it in 18 frames. So that's why you ended up getting some of that, um, some of the fast motion in that, in that romp. That's fantastic. Which, of, of course makes it so much more like whimsical and cute and playful and artistic than just having a regular, if everything was at regular speed. Right. And that's also the kind of thing like we watch movies today and we see things like the fast paced editing and the use of slow motion and that kind of stuff. And it seems very, run-of-the-mill like every action movie (laughs) ever has slow motion in the fight sequences and you know like that kind of stuff is so um commonplace today but it's really really groundbreaking in 1964 right I mean yeah and so much of this movie is about breaking the rules like that's what the whole plot is about that the Beatles are trying like you know you can't make us rehearse we're gonna go romp in the field and um and then stylistically it's very rule-breaking um, which is just kind of the whole, you know, the rocker aesthetic and the whole Spirit. new wave aesthetic. And it's just, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, it's funny that that's, um, that that was an accident, sort of a happy accident. Yeah, I really like, I really like that. Yeah, story. that's a great story. And I love that they just had a helicopter. Is that the helicopter that they take off in at the end? I feel like it was some, but like it wasn't even theirs. It was like <laughs> leftover from somebody else's production or something. Well, this was a pretty low budget film, right? It was a low-budget film. In fact, um, maybe Walter Shenson or, or Dick Lester said color was not even on the table. Like, it wasn't oh, wow. even an option. Yeah, they were like, there was no way our budget was going to – there's no way that color would have worked within our budget. <laughs> like, it was very small we, and very tight. And we had a, we had a real short window um, of time to shoot everything. And Yeah, it, it sounds like it really – was shot and edited, like just put together really fast, which I mean, I guess in part also makes sense um, from a business standpoint because they're really trying to capitalize on the Beatles' success. Yes, but I mean, fortunately they got somebody who thrived in that kind of a situation. Like he wasn't, you know, Dick Lester wasn't upset that he didn't have all these cranes and, you know. Well, he was a TV director. And you can't, you know, along with direct cinema and new wave, you see uh, the mark of TV all over this fifties TV because fifties TV, that was like, you just make do with what you have. You know, you're in the studio and you're just kind of making stuff up as you go along and it's, you don't have a big budget. You don't have a lot of room to do a lot of effects and these grand setups. Uh, you know, yeah. you're not going to have a crane. You're not going to have a helicopter. You know, you've, you've got, Three cameras and a lot of it's going out live and you're just slapping shit together. And so you can, (laughs) you can see that. And in fact, I think like some of my favorite sequences in the film are when they're filming the actual TV show, because it feels like (laughs) that's where it, it's so authentic and you can really see Lester's TV background come to life. Like all of those shots in the control room are so authentic and so accurate um, and so you can really see the care that he puts into, um, just the technical aspect. Like he's going to get that right because that's where he comes from and that's what he knows. And, you know, 
if nothing else, he is going to get that TV sequence right. Right. And that's a cute little peek behind the curtain, too. Yeah. But in like a, in a way that's that's kind of cute because it doesn't you know, it's not the self-referential way sometimes that that movies talk about the movie business. It's not like romanticizing any of it. This is what's going on while the Beatles are doing their own thing. And like and also that they're too cool to care. Everybody on the TV set is having their own drama and, you know, they have their own jobs to do or whatever. And then the Beatles just kind of like show up, do their thing, don't give a shit and then move on. Right. It's also a funny story from Dick Lester. There's the final segment, the sort the so-called payoff at the end where they, they do the TV show and it's like this lame medley of right. <laughs> he said so i got six cameras like the, the the idea to do like six cameras on them there to to cover everything mm-hmm. and he said i literally did not know six camera operators <laughs> and like three like i had to get recommendations from my other camera operators oh my god which again that speaks to like coming from tv where you have like three cameras at most. <laughs> like, why would you ever need six camera right, operators at one time? you don't need six cameras operating. You can't, you know, if you're doing TV. Well, and that's why they, he like, he put one guy in the audience, you know, mm-hmm. from the girl. But I think it's really creatively filmed, the way that he actually it approaches is. the concert footage at the end compared to what you see, you know, if you look at the Ed Sullivan footage or something, which, right, right. you know, is still, like, well done uh, as far as, TV yeah, filming, TV. right? Like that's pretty yeah. straightforward, but it's fine. Um, but I think he's he comes up with some creative shots. Like he shoots through the TV camera viewfinder at one point. He shoots with their ass. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get right. a lot of Ringo's ass at one point. That's true. You do get you do get all four asses. You do, so you do. So that's that, important. That works. That's <laughs> but a lot of the stuff like in the control room and like I think visually he comes up with some really interesting ways to tell this, which, you know, really separates this film from other musicals. If you look at, I don't know, even like an Elvis Presley musical or something, um, and especially if you look at like the big MGM um, musicals from the 50s, a lot of times the musical numbers, they just sort of set the camera up and let it roll and you don't really cut that much because you want to see the choreography you want to see the big uh number right right and he really breaks this up and and you've got so many shots and so many different angles and it's really it makes it so much more electric it just really you capture the excitement uh in a way that you don't in in traditional musicals and so that was really fun agreed yes It, it was a really good combination of talents between like the Beatles and Dick Lester I think that was a really really good match yeah he was definitely the right choice for this because uh, he yeah. you know brought all of these different sensibilities you know not just the documentary and the new wave and the television but none of them are like mainstream commercial filmmaking uh, like he doesn't come from that yeah. world at all and he doesn't seem particularly yes. influenced by that world uh, and so even though, like, A Hard Day's Night is a mainstream commercial film, right? I mean, it's, you know, yeah, yeah, right. it, it's distributed by a, you know, mainstream distributor. Like, it's... Like, it's very watchable. It's, it's yeah. not like a, it's not a hard, serious watch. Yeah, and it, but I mean, it's not like, um, 
meant to be some kind of underground cinema or something, right? right like right, it's right, meant right, to right, be yeah. a commercial film. Yeah, yeah, for, for public consumption. Right, right. right. Yeah, to play in sure. the cinemas and make a lot of money and capitalize on the Beatles. But uh, Lester's able to bring in all of these kind of subversive sensibilities that um, I, you know, definitely appeal to the, you know, 20-something Beatle fan audience at that time. Uh, and an appeal to kind of like this younger forward thinking audience uh, and, and right. breaking from all these mainstream sensibilities. And so uh, that's a lot of fun. He, it captures the moment so beautifully and it captures like not just Beatlemania, which I actually think the Males' documentary captures Beatlemania better. But mm-hmm. yes, this yeah, one sure. just captures that moment like that. It's such a snapshot of 1964 uh, in such a beautiful yes, way. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is a nice little... Um, time capsule of, of not just the Beatles, but a lot of different elements of Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. And what you were saying of, with, like, something that is pleasing to everybody, to, to a mass audience, but is still artistic and, you know, still has the occasional you know, subversive technique or whatever. Yeah. That's kind of what the Beatles are as well. Yeah, for sure. Which makes it another reason why it's such a great match. Yeah, absolutely. Hard Day's Night is simply a classic example of what happens when enlightened management gives brilliant talent the ability to create. That was David Picker, VP of Production and Marketing for United Artists at the time, talking about how Dick Lester just had total freedom to do whatever he wanted. Like nobody interfered with his vision and how he was shooting things and how he was going to do it at all. That's great. Well, and you know, I think that's probably in part because the budget was so low. So like, and the Beatles are so huge at this point that it's kind of like, literally he could just film them reading the phone book for two hours and they'd make back yeah. their investment. So I could say, it's like, this was it's not true. a high-risk uh, project. I think everybody was just kind of stunned by it because it was such an anti-Hollywood type movie. Uh, nobody just liked it, but nobody had expected what they saw. Yeah, um, it really is anti-Hollywood if you look at Hollywood in 1964 because 64 Hollywood... I mean, Hollywood's a few years behind um, England, even, as far as, you know, kind of moving into new wave uh, styles. Hollywood in 64 is doing, you know, Mary Poppins. Uh, They're doing, like, really mainstream, um, crowd-pleasing films. (laughs) And so um, something like A Hard Day's Night, you know, that's, that's a little bit too daring. Hollywood doesn't get into that for another few years until like 67, 68, when uh, you get into the new Hollywood, like, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and that kind of stuff. Yeah. The Graduate. The Graduate, exactly. So that's kind of all the stuff I had. And then the rest is just <laughs> impressions and notes and just anything we want to talk about. I thought there was a lot that stood out. I had a lot of thoughts <laughs> but about like the characters, like the Beatles as characters in it. Yes. And there was a lot of stuff that just, um, there, I mean, there were some things that just didn't resonate with me at all. Like, I don't know. What do you, what's your take on the grandpa? Oh yeah, that was real stupid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He's creepy, right? Like he's just kind of creepy. Okay. So I get him as a device. He's got, he's 
because he has to it's at some point he he has to sort of inspire motivate like radicalize Ringo <laughs> he convinces Ringo that he's being um you know victimized right. by the other Beatles or whatever and like provokes him into into walking away that's kind of a plot device mm-hmm. um and then I guess he's kind of also just there to just just to give them something to sort of push off of yeah he's right trouble. yeah like he's definitely a plot device and he's there to kind of stir up shit and and cause trouble and I don't know I did not find him as charming as the screenwriter obviously found him um I don't know I thought he was yeah. I, he didn't he did not work for me but I also get that that actor was kind of famous at the time and was he uh, yeah, apparently he was. He had a, a TV show at the time that was a big deal. So, like, there's all the references oh, okay. to him being a clean old man, and I guess that's yeah. a direct reference to his TV show where he was a dirty old man. Oh, I which see. totally went over my like. I had no idea what they were talking about, okay, but me I mean, you know, obviously, fifty years later in another country, then you know, it's not really going to land in the same way. <laughs> so I, w- I wonder if that was for the older people in the audience. Maybe who are, who would who would have watched his show? Like teenagers are probably not watching that stupid show. Right, right. Who knows? Again, I mean, who it's knows? The sixties, and you know, if it's on, it's on. You know, right. yeah. like, totally so much on TV. They, the kids weren't watching MTV in nineteen sixty four. Yeah, they were on their iPads. They were right, exactly. watching that stupid <laughs> show. Yeah, so, I mean, he didn't work for me. But, I mean, the boys, uh, I thought were a lot of fun, but um, it was so interesting to see how they were presented. Like, John is so, like, almost infantilized. I mean, there's that scene where he's in the bathtub and he's playing with, like, a submarine or a battleship or something. And... It's it was just weird to me how he's really presented as like a little kid almost. Well, that was it's interesting because I, I it's still so strange to me that you that you've never seen this movie, but <laughs> like because it was one of the first things that I saw when I was like twelve, mm-hmm. getting into the Beatles. Like it was you know it, like. I, this was the baby chick, or I was the baby chick, and this was, you know, the, the thing that imprinted on me, my, gave me my impression <laughs> of the Beatles. And um, at 12 or 13, as a young Beatle baby, um, I was just so smitten with John. And watching this movie, which I haven't seen it in a long time, um, I felt that way all over again. Like I had, a, like, I just sort of fell in love with John. He was so adorable. Yeah. Like so cute and and funny and like I guess he's supposed to be because they call him a troublemaker at right. some point. The manager kind of grumbles like he'll be the death of me or whatever. Yeah, but he but he's not really a troublemaker at all. Oh he's, yeah, he's kind of impish, you know. But he's mostly just like like cuddly and sweet. Yeah, their idea of trouble. It's so funny just how pure this film is, right? Like, it's so just sweet <laughs> and pure. And it's all like, oh, you Beatles causing trouble. And they just want to go frolic in the field. You know, like, that's... <laughs> like, I love that Ringo, when he has his big kind of, like, breakdown and like, oh, man, I'm disrespected. I'm going to take off. And he, and he is like, I'm, I'm going to go on strike or whatever. And his 
his thing is to just wander around and take pictures and make friends with a kid. Like that's yeah, that's yeah, his yeah. big rebellion. And like to help a woman uh, walk across a muddy street. Like he's <laughs> – and then he gets arrested for it. It's like what the hell is happening here? <laughs> I mean he does – like he does try to pick up some chicks and he goes to a pub. But which are, he goes to a pub, but he's not there to get into trouble. He's just there to like yeah, have yeah. a drink have and a eat a sandwich. And, and yeah, then he accidentally causes a little bit of trouble. And then he wants to play darts and he's bad at it. And then that's <laughs> like what lands him in jail. Or it's so funny that like it's just so pure. It's so, yeah. um, you know, that the, the Beatles are these great troublemakers and there's, it's funny because there's glimpses of something darker. Like at the beginning, uh, when they're all on the train, and John is drinking a bottle of Coke, and then he mimes snorting the bottle of Coke. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so you've got these like little tiny glimpses of something darker that I think is closer to like what's really going on. And I'm not saying they're all cokeheads or whatever, but yeah, just yeah, the yeah. fact that like they're probably a lot more biting. Um, in real life. Yeah. And this is such a like sanitized, sweet version of, you know, the troublemakers that they are. Yeah. And then, there, but there's another, um, there's another reference to that in one of the dressing room scenes or something where the, I think it's the manager threatens and he says, I'll tell them all the truth about you. Yeah. To, to John. And then there's no follow up with that. I thought there was going <laughs> to be a payoff later on where the truth about John was that he like <laughs> sleeps with a teddy bear or something. Like I thought there was going to be some payoff and then it never happened. So it was like, okay. <laughs> it really left me wondering like, shit, what is the truth about John? I want to know. Right. In the, in the context of this film, the truth would absolutely be that he like – you know, calls his Secretly calls his grandma every on, night or something. Yeah, you know, yeah, like totally. it would absolutely be something really, really sweet. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it is. You know, another thing I thought was interesting too was that John. You know, they show him chasing girls, um, and you know, in kind of a comical way, but still chasing girls at a time when he's married and he has like an, a baby at home. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't the the wife doesn't exist in this universe though. Right. But this universe is supposed to be I don't know, is this supposed to be a different universe? Isn't this supposed to be the Beatles? <laughs> well, there is a fictional grandfather that Well, that's exist. true. That is true. And a fake manager and his fake sidekick. That's true. I don't know. I I found that kind of interesting that he's, you know, picking up on the the showgirls from the TV show and and that well, it's it's very flirty and he's kind of chasing girls and and ogling them and yet you know, the, obviously true. the fans know that he has a wife at home and so that kind of like I I don't know. I mean, clearly the the producers thought that it would be better to present the Beatles as available um and, uh, you know, because yeah. you, to get the interest from the, the fans. Well, there is, you know, the, the, that's true. Although the only ones who are seen really hitting on girls are the other three. I definitely agree with you that, that um, John is like impish and kind of goofy mm -hmm. in, in this. But in a very childlike in, in way. 
He reminded yeah. me, this is going to sound really random, but he kind of reminded me of like Harpo Marx in a way. Yeah, that he's just sort of, I don't know, just in that very, yeah, like he's an imp. He's a prankster, he, that, like that yeah, kind of a character. My note says John is a great physical comedian. Yeah. Because to me, he, I mean, he does have, he does have some good lines, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, to me, it wasn't just a matter of like he got the the funny lines. It was just like he just sort of delivered on all the comedy, mm-hmm. and a lot of it was was physical. Like a lot, you know, he does those silly dances, mm-hmm. and it's like the bit in the tub. It, it's so dumb, yeah. but it's like really cute. It is. It's Actually, adorable, <laughs> right? And then you get know. the payoff where the manager comes in and the bathtub is draining, and he's like, "John, John," and it's yeah, so yeah. stupid but so funny. Like it really. I don't know. You saw it coming a mile away, and I still laughed. I still thought it was <laughs> yeah. funny. Well, the the manager really sells. Yeah, it. he does. He does. <laughs> that, I do like that about a hard day's night. Is it's not, it's not too cool. Oh, like it takes itself too seriously. It doesn't right? take itself seriously at all. Like, and you've, and of course, you've got this like tradition of British slapstick comedy. You know that it's definitely drawing <laughs> on. Um, because Lester had worked with Peter Sellers before this, and so you've got you know, that kind of comic tradition. British humor. Yeah. you've yeah. So, I mean, for sure you've got the whole kind of, and, you know, British humor is just like slapstick, but without being as, as over the top as American slapstick, like kind of understated yeah, yeah. slapstick, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I like if you compare the, A Hard Day's Night to like the monkeys, which is obviously, you know, the the yeah. monkeys. The is show sort of, that was modeled. After yeah, for movie. sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's a good comparison. Like the monkeys is trying to be what a hard day's night is, but it's American, and yes. so it has it to is very Hollywood. Yeah, it's American network television, so like it has to be yeah. extra. Like it has to go over the top in a way that a hard day's night doesn't. I don't know. I like there's that sequence when they. It's like free Ringo from the police station and they're running and it's a very like yeah. slapsticky sequence because they're sort of running back and forth and the cops are chasing them yeah, and everything. Yeah. Um, but it's not – It I was expecting it to devolve into like even like Benny Hill or something and it just yeah, never yeah, yeah. did, which was good. Right. Like it was, it was exactly the right tone for that. They randomly go back to the police station to catch their breath or so. I like it's so weird, but yeah, it's yeah, funny. Yeah. You know, it's just it's not it's not it doesn't make you groan. Oh god. Yeah. They were um, so mean to Ringo. <laughs> that made me sad. <laughs> like, Why were they mean to him? They were him? just constantly like there's a whole sequence where they're just going off on his nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was And, ridiculous. like, there's a lot of short jokes. Poor Ringo. And then when they brought in all the fan mail and Ringo didn't get any, and I was like, oh, that sucks. But then he got the biggest pile, so that <laughs> he was vindicated. I did feel better. It was it was like a very Charlie Brown moment for me for a minute where he was like, oh, Ringo. But, yeah, he was vindicated, so that was good. He got he, the most. He did so He did so well, I thought. He did. He really did. He's just adorable in this. I thought so too. I actually thought, um, I mean, he's kind of the, you know, star of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they wrote him was really fascinating because he's got all these moments throughout the film where he, you know, they give him these lines 
that are sort of very um, introspective about like, yeah. well, yeah. you know, when they're on the train at the beginning and uh, there's a woman who's inviting him in and he's like, well, no, I would only go in and then I would be rejected. And then that would, yeah, you know, yeah. and <laughs> so it's like all this pop psychology, which is kind yes, of a yeah. funny, um, you know, recurring gag that he's um, that he's very deep and, and sort of introspective. But it's also, I don't know, it, like he has this sort of arc where he he's sort of insecure and then he sort of comes into his own at the end or something. Um, I don't know. It's it, funny it, that, the, that he's presented as this very sort of deep but insecure... Um, but also very sort of introspective and sensitive. Like, he's a very, I don't know, they've written him to be a very interesting character. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he's actually um, had more character development than any of the others. Yeah. It's kind of a cliche, that joke about, like, somebody who's real simple and stupid saying something profound. Mm -hmm. like, it's like, you know, watching a dog smoke or whatever. <laughs> um, but... Um, <laughs> But I, I didn't feel like that was the joke. No, I didn't feel he was like a monkey smoking. No, I felt it. It was. It was just like he might not say a lot, or he might. You might assume he is stupid because he's the drummer. I guess yeah. there's like a stereotype of drummers are stupid or something. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, he isn't. And and the grandfather when they're in the um, like the cafeteria or whatever, he's getting on his case for reading. Yeah. He's like, you're wasting your life reading. Put down the stupid book. <laughs> right. Which, you know, you don't you don't usually... Like, the stereotype of Ringo isn't that he's a, a bookworm. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that they tried to present him as being, like, the dumb guy that says smart things. I agree with that completely. I saw him as being, like, just like deep. The underdog. Deep and artistic and sensitive. Because, yeah. yeah, he's reading a book. And again, when he has his low point and he takes off uh, to sort of find himself, he he's taking pictures. You know, he's yeah. not going yeah. out to j get drunk and chase girls or break windows or whatever. He's going out to, to be artistic. So yeah. it's, I, I, yeah, I found that very interesting that he's, you know, he's just trying to express himself and that he befriends yeah. a kid and that and the scene where where he meets the kid and they start talking and the kid's like oh uh, I'm I'm you know ditching school and Ringo's like I'm ditching work and and they yeah. kind of bond and then the kid goes and runs off to be with his friends and Ringo's alone and it's like he, the look on Ringo's face is so sad he's like oh <laughs> I thought we were getting along. Like, like he lost his new friend and he seemed so bummed about it. I don't know why that just killed me. That The look on his face when the little boy runs off. And Ringo's just standing there by himself like, oh, man. And he's like taking selfies. Like he sets up his camera. To take yeah, a yeah. I don't know. I just love that whole sequence where Ringo is just being deep and artistic and sensitive he told a, a funny story in the Beatles anthology mm -hmm. of that scene, the one you were just describing, <laughs> right. where he looks so sad. <laughs> like, yeah, um, the reason that I that I look so terrible is because the night before shooting, I had gone out and partied really, really <laughs> late, and I was super hungover. <laughs> you 
I think we all had a terrible time trying to learn lines because we we wouldn't anyway. You know, we used to sort of read them and try and learn them before we went on the on the set. Towards the end of making the film, we got the hang of it a little bit more. At first, it was very frightening. It was nerve-wracking trying to say these things as though we meant them because that takes training as an actor, I, I reckon. People that know us know, you know, that that you know we're sort of dead nervous for the first. But practically the whole of the train bit, we're just in going to pieces, you know, so embarrassed about it all. But there's a lot of things that embarrass us about ourselves, but, you know, the average person doesn't, you know, notice. It's just little things that we notice. So I thought George did really good in, in his scene, actually. He did. I He strikes me as the one of the four that's the least comfortable on camera. Um, he seems the least sort of, the least natural, I guess. The other ones just seem hammier, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And George <laughs> is l- less of a ham, um, which, you know, this is a movie for hams. And so that kind of uh, well, yeah. worked to yes, his disadvantage. Yes, I, I agree with you in general, for sure. He is the least hammiest of all the Beatles. Yeah. 100%. And in his scene, which is such a weird random scene where he goes in and they're going to, like, make him into an influencer right, or right. something. Um, and uh, But he handles it well. But it, it's it's interesting that it's all verbal, which I think uh, really plays to his strengths. Exactly. It's not He's not the, asked to do very much. Yeah, well, and it's not the broad physical comedy. Like you were saying, like, John was pretty comfortable with that and good with that, whereas George, uh, I don't think he would have been believable. Um, and, in fact, there's a scene early in the film where they're all dancing, and he is a terrible dancer. I don't know if you've noticed this, <laughs> right but he's here. in the background, and he's just awful. <laughs> and so it. I don't know if he's just not, like – you know, just maybe he's one of those people that's just not comfortable in his skin um, or I don't know. But, um, yeah, he uh, it didn't surprise me that he didn't get a lot of the physical gags. Yeah, no, it seems like his his role is more to just like be dry. Yeah. And, and it works for him. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And he has like um, sort of like resting emo bitch face. <laughs> It <laughs> <laughs> just sort of like that. That's just always kind of his role. Yeah. Or or ninety five percent of the time. Yeah. In re- in real life too, like it seems like in the Beatles com- press conferences and whatnot. Like. Yeah, he's not the one that's like jumping in with all the quips yes. and everything. He's just I mean, kind of funny. Yeah, he is. He is. Um, but. He's not fighting for the microphone with yes, the others, though. That's exactly like, it. Like like three. Like drama queen exhibitionist yeah. group, and then there's George. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like the other three are so like over the top funny. Look at me, look at me. I'm gonna, you know, they're trying to top each other, and George yeah. is just kind of chilling in the background. Like I- I'm funny too, but I, you know, I'm good. <laughs> you guys take yeah, the spotlight. Exactly. I'm just gonna hang out here. If anyone ever wants to ask me a question, I'll be here. Yeah, but plus he's so young and I I mean that's something yeah. like it really struck me in the males's film but a little bit less so in a hard day's night but just how incredibly young they are 
Um, And, you know, so I I guess I could see George being the youngest of the group. You know, like maybe he's just still a little bit awkward or insecure or something. I don't know. Maybe he just hasn't quite found himself or whatever. Well, I think he's not as, he's not as loud yeah. and he's, and he's not quite as quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he's smart. It's, you know, I don't think, Oh yeah. Whatever. It's not that he can't keep up. It's just that like, he's, he's literally out shouted by the others. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think he cares that much. Like, I don't think he needs the spotlight as much as they do. Yeah. I think that's true as well. He was definitely fun. Uh, and you know, he fit in, uh, and he definitely, um, Yeah, he was fun to watch. And that only leaves Paul. Oh, Paul. (laughs) I was surprised. I felt like Paul had the least to do. And I think it was because he got saddled with the grandpa. And so, you know, it felt like half of the time he was on screen, he was like, where's my grandpa? (laughs) And so it kind of robbed him of any kind of character development or arc or, or I don't know. He was just. Well, actually um, they did write a scene for Paul. He wanders into a dance studio and there's like <laughs> sexy chicks in leotards or something. Right. And um, he has a scene where he picks up this girl or he tries to pick her up or whatever. But um, apparently he was kind of terrible in it. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I don't know if that's why it was cut. Like, it might have been cut for time. Right. Honestly. But a contributing factor was that he wasn't great. Like, well, Paul is a terrible actor. Uh Uh-huh. I can can tell you that, having seen him in other films. Like, he is an awful actor. (laughs) And I think he, like, he definitely wants to be a good actor, Mm -hmm. but is not. It is just, it's like the one skill that he does not have. Which is funny because he's very natural. Like he's he's definitely charismatic and he's he feels natural on camera, um, especially in the documentary. And Maisel for sure. Yeah, that's the biggest disconnect for me. And Dick Lester even talked about it once in like some documentary, or whatever. I couldn't find it, but I've definitely heard it. And he's like, I don't know what Paul's what the problem was. And, <laughs> and Dick Lester likes Paul, so he's not. Yeah. You know, he wasn't bagging on him or anything, but he, he was just like, I don't know if he was just trying too hard or like he just couldn't pull it off. He's like, and he had, you know, he was dating an actress at the time. Mm-hmm. And he went to like a ton of plays and he was a big film fan and he is a frustrated filmmaker. Um, huh. But it's like he's too self-conscious, I think. Yeah. You know? Like when I was watching it over this time, John was like a total crush worthy, very cute. He looks so happy throughout. Like yeah. he's deliriously happy. He really the does. Movie. He does. He looks slightly <laughs> embarrassed from time to time. Like he's kind of nervous embarrassed. Uh-huh. Um, but it's cute. And then Paul to me came off as handsome and tall. <laughs> like, that was my main takeaway. Yeah. Like confident, handsome and tall and sh- and sharp and just kind of like no nonsense like he just he didn't seem as silly yes but it feels like there is always a part of him that's thinking about i don't know that has the weight of the world on him in a a way almost like he's thinking about okay you know what's the next move what's uh what do i need to be doing like 
like he can't turn his brain off or something and yes, just that, and just be in the moment in a in the way that like John and Ringo seemed like they have no problem just being in the moment where Paul it seems like there's always a part of his brain that's thinking like is this right am i doing the right thing what do i have to do next but you know like like he can't turn that off yeah, that's how it looked like to me in the film. It, it seemed like he was taking the role very seriously. Yeah, for sure. And, and he didn't need to, you know? Yeah. Like, but I wonder how much of that, and you might, you would know this obviously better than I would, I wonder how much of it was him thinking ahead as far as like, this movie needs to do well because it needs to improve our brand and we need to, you know, like capitalize yeah. on our success. And like, you know, how like much- it was quietly stressful to him. Yeah, yeah, like- like maybe he realized how much was at stake with this film and I'm sure they all did. Like I'm not, you know, discounting or, you know, assuming that the others don't, but maybe Paul was thinking more in terms of like a a good movie can really help our career and a bad movie can really, you know, put the brakes on all this momentum we have. Whereas maybe the other ones were thinking more in terms of like, Hey, this is awesome. Let's just have fun and party and not, not that they're not taking this seriously, but more like, let's have fun now while we can and not constantly think about, you know, what's next. And I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into this. Um, but that's maybe I, my impression is that he just, he maybe had some, some childhood, you know, fleeting fantasies about being an actor, yeah. you know, and he just wanted to do a good job too much that it, he ended up not doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, yeah, that or he could just, be it. Or just simply doesn't have the talent. Yeah. Right. Like maybe we're just reading a whole lot into it and he's just not a very good actor. You're so right. certainly at the age of 22, he's not, you know, there's, it has zero training. With no in training, I mean, no do. background, no experience. Yeah, of course he's not going to be. Like he's got a certain, I mean, he's charismatic as hell. And and there's, you you want to look at him. You want to watch him on screen. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's not surprising that he's not, you know, he's Lawrence very, Olivier. Like to me, he came off as very handsome. Like, mm-hmm. He has a beautiful face. You yeah. not look at him. But he did not come off as cute to me at all. Like, it's kind of crazy to think of him as, as opposed to the Maisel's film where he's freaking adorable. Yeah, he is. Like, in the Hard Day's Night movie, he just didn't, cute is not the word I would use. I would call John cute. Yeah. maybe Ringo cute. But, like, not Paul. He just seemed like he kind of whips the others into shape. He seemed seemed older. He did. Which is weird because he's not. But he seemed... He did seem older and more mature. Uh, he comes off as the one who who is like when it's time to do something, he's like, all right, guys, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Stop fooling around, <laughs> which I think is kind of, you know, I think that's kind of true. Not yeah. Not entirely, but kind of true. No, he comes across as more thoughtful, I think. Maybe introspective or a little bit less, you know, like John or Ringo. Paul seems a little bit more in his head, I guess. Yes. And, and like as an actor, he's too in his head. Right. Right. Yeah. Like that's the worst thing you can be as an actor. Like you, you have to be like fully in your body and just, you know, sort of embrace each moment and willing to put yourself out there. And he seems a little bit more reserved or something like he's holding back. Yeah. Because when I'm thinking of the movie, which like I just watched it. So it's, it's not like I'm having a hard time remembering it, but I'm having a hard time remembering what Paul did in the movie. Like, you know, thinking about it, 
you know, John and Ringo really spring to mind. And Ringo, I think, has a, a bigger part. So you kind of, it makes yeah, sense. Yes. But John's role is no bigger than George or Paul. And yet... He pops off the screen. Yeah. You really... He really sticks with you in a way that um, George Paul and, Paul and even George, yeah, um, yeah, don't as much. Yeah. And Paul even less so than George. Yeah. My, I mean, in my opinion. Well, Paul doesn't really have a big scene. Like, they all have... Yep. You know, George has the scene where he goes into the office, the, the modeling office or whatever that is, and John has a few moments, but he's got that scene in the hallway with the woman who's like, oh, you're him. Am yeah, I him? Yeah, sort of more dispersed throughout yeah. the smaller scenes. Yes. You know, little vignettes. But Paul doesn't really have that. He doesn't really have sort of a showcase scene. And it sounds like he did, but that it was cut because he sucked. So, yeah, so yeah he doesn't really get to showcase himself as much as uh, yeah. the other guys do. Yeah. So, I mean, if it's because he sucks, then that's – it's. It's kind of his fault. I mean, yeah. it's too bad, but you know, you can't, you know, you're going to like make the movie worse just right. to spare his feelings or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, and it's not like it hurt his career to have that one scene cut. So I'm not, you know, yeah, exactly. my heart is not breaking for Paul McCartney for the, right, exactly. for the fame that and he also, never knew. <laughs> is it, it's like, is there one thing you're not talented at? You know, yeah. boo hoo. Yeah. Like, great. Yeah. <laughs> That's comforting. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> But I did notice, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later when we compare the, the films, is that watching this did really reinforce for me why at the beginning of my Beatlemania, mm -hmm. um, Paul was not even, like, I didn't even notice him. Yeah. Because he makes, he makes like, zero impression in A Hard Day's Night. You know, I was transfixed on John. The whole yeah. Time. Yeah, and it's funny, not having seen the movies before, um, it, you know, I've always been kind of 60, 40, Paul, John, you know, like, yeah. I, I love them both, but I've always been like, maybe that needle is tipped a little bit more to the Paul side, but I, all I have to go by are, you know, is the music and, yeah, you know, yeah. so that makes sense. Right. But, um, I yeah. can see, if I had seen A Hard Day's Night when I first learned who the Beatles were, then maybe I, I would have a different impression of Paul. Yeah. George is tuned up. I've George just... is tuning up. Two. Can buy me love. There, oh, oh, and then the other thing. Can I just have like a shout out to Victor Spinetti as the neurotic director? Oh, God, I loved him. Director in the mohair sweater. I so loved him so much. He was so funny. He, was. he, I mean, talk about an actor just like making the most of a role. And <laughs> like it speaks, and I don't know where I should have looked this up, and now I feel bad that I didn't do my research. I don't know where the screenwriters came from, I don't know what their background was. But, like, for sure with Richard Lester coming from TV, like, I just feel like that must have been, I don't know if it was an in-joke uh, or if it was... Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. the fact that one of the best characters in the movie is, the t is, you know, this bit part of a TV director and that the film's director is a TV director, I like, that's not a coincidence. 
it was amazing. Yeah. I, I, I felt like there was a lot of, not heavy-handed, but like kind of subtle commentary on the television, you know, yeah. uh, business, as it were. I yeah. love that I, the show that the Beatles were on, like the show within a, the film that the Beatles were going to be on, it was so wacky. Like they're... The magician. They, there was a magician with dancing girls. A German opera? Like what is this? <laughs> yes, <that's right. laughs> I love that the like audience within the movie that's there to see the Beatles is having to sit through this German opera performance and the guy with the birds in order to see the Beatles. But, yeah, Victor Spinetti is amazing. It's <laughs> like the neurotic. Oh god, director. he's phenomenal. But he asked for like milk and tranquilizers at one point. <laughs> I was like, my God, I just want to be friends with him. He made me laugh out loud yeah. a couple times. Oh, yeah. As soon as he comes out in that sweater, like, that's such a sight gag. And then right? the the boys start making fun of it. Like, I just feel like the director or the costumer or something just saw that sweater and was like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. We need to give it to Spinetti. Yeah. Like, like, put it on the director. Victor Spinetti is actually, he, he became a good friend of the Beatles. Oh, did he? Again, you, yes, you've never, you don't know anything about the um the Beatles film oeuvre. I but, do uh, not. Yeah, he returned. He's in help also. Oh, nice. Um, he became good buddies with the Beatles and John's especially. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And then he developed one of um, John's stories. The one of them all jerking off together, actually. <laughs> um, he took that and made a play out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's not where you expected that story to go. I did, did not. I thought maybe a <laughs> yeah. short story or something, but I like that it's a play. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like John wrote it up into a like a sketch or something. Mm-hmm. And Victor Spinetti was like, That's amazing. I'm I'm gonna put it on I'm gonna put a play of it. This is like nineteen sixty eight, so mm-hmm. I guess the hair era. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. I mean you know. It was one of many plays about circle jerks <laughs> to hit the West End that year. <laughs> they were very in vogue at the time. Very much so. It was all the rage. <laughs> this one had a Beatles element to it. Absolutely. So it better. The best kind of circle jerk plays <laughs> involved John Lennon. Yes. Yes, yeah, totally. So my favorite segment, I think, um, in addition to the Can't Buy Me Love romp out mm-hmm. in the field, which is super, super cute. Yeah. Um, my other favorite segment was the press party. Yeah. I just loved everything about it. I yeah. loved how it was shot, how it was edited. Like, everybody's on point. All the jokes land. It's, mm-hmm. it's really good. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I think my favorite part was just Ringo's voyage of self-discovery i love that (laughs) i love just deep ringo just going around taking pictures befriending children (laughs) one thing that struck me about the movie was how it's called a hard day's night and you don't really see them working at all (laughs) there's no actual work in fact they're kind of just like trying to get out of work for a lot of it and like like they come across as so unprofessional but in a way that's you know that's that's meant to be sort of fun and irreverent and like let's stick it to the man um 
but in a way that's so far from reality. Like these are professional musicians and they wouldn't be blowing off rehearsals and they wouldn't be, you know, like you don't see any of the labor that goes into creating these performances. You just see them goofing off and trying to get out of work, um, which is (laughs) completely contrary to what would have been the reality, but much more appealing to audiences at the time. Or to the um, to the Beatles demographic at the time, at least. Yes. So that's a hard day's night. On to the Beatles' first U.S. visit. Okay. So just a little bit of herstory <laughs> on the first U.S. visit. It was commissioned by Granada TV, which was a television studio out of Manchester. They wanted to find a cheap film crew, I guess, to shoot the Beatles on their first trip to the United States for the, a television a television program. Uh, they got Albert Mazels, the magnificent filmmaker <laughs> who most of us know from uh, Grey Gardens and Gimme Shelter. He also shot a lot of the footage for Monterey Pop. Um, Beatles fans might know him from uh, The Love We Make, which is a documentary on Paul McCartney's post 9-11 concert huh yeah um so he worked with Paul many years later and I just found out two interesting things one is that he before he had made this film he was one of the um cinematographers on primary have you ever seen yeah yes I just saw it it's also on HBO Max right now nice um, and he did a 30 for 30, apparently. Oh, really? Uh, it called Muhammad and Larry. Yes. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. yeah he had a long knows? career. He had a very long career, and those are just a couple mm-hmm. of highlights that people may know him for. So they shot this film. It, it was basically just um, Albert Mazels and his brother. Um, they had what they considered very, which I'm sure was, pretty state-of-the-art equipment. They basically just shot it on the go. And it originally premiered on November 13th, 1964, as a special episode of the CBS variety series, The Entertainers. That's information I got on Wiki. It was actually kind of hard to find information on the original broadcast. Mm -hmm. Even even watching the documentary with Albert Mazels, I know it aired on TV once in 1964. That's basically... Yeah. You know, what we know. Um, Albert Mazels was hoping for a theater release, but unfortunately, A Hard Day's Night kind of eclipsed the documentary. So it kind of just aired that one time in 1964 and then was sort of lost, you know, it lost to history at that point. But then they pulled it out and re-released it in 1991. Apple did. Re-edited, right? They they re-edited it by including... The Ed Sullivan footage, which wasn't available the first time around. So basically, the first cut was essentially the one that we have now on DVD, except without the perform the musical performances. I think they cut some stuff, though. I had read, and I might be wrong about this. I had read that the running time of the original and the running time yes. of the re-edited are actually the same, but they added a lot of footage. Well, but then Albert Mazels, he was saying because he showed he showed the extra footage that's not in the 91 cut but he said at some point he was like yeah maybe we should have included that like he said 
all the reasons that these were left out of the original film. So it's unclear to me what exactly made the original. Yeah. Because he never, you would think that he would say this was in the original cut, but we trimmed it out for 1991. Yeah, that's true. He never explains. So it's possible that some of it in the, in the making of was cut, but since you watched it as well, you can see there was quite a bit of footage. Right. That should have probably gone. That's what I don't understand is like, why didn't they just put it back in for the 1991 version? Like it didn't go to theaters in 91. So what's the time constraint? Like, just give it, give us all. Yeah. That's what's surprising because you, it makes sense for the TV release that they don't, you know, obviously it has to fit into a time slot, but that's not the case if they're just making either a theatrical or a DVD version. It can be as long as you want. And in 1991, exactly. it's not like, well, I'm not sure if these Beatles are going to take off. You know, like. Right, right, exactly. It's like, I don't know if Beatles fans want right. a two-hour and 15-minute movie. That's excessive. Right. Let's keep it down to 145. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what? No. Yeah, so that's well. interesting. Because even the, the re-edited movie is, is short. Exactly. There's a little bit of confusion over, you know, what was cut out of the original um, document. Yeah. But it's all included on the extras. So anyway. I loved it. I really loved this. I just thought it was so electric. And it just captured that moment so beautifully. Like this moment when they are just bursting through and their reactions to it. it, It's so much fun to watch. Um, It seemed like... I mean, I'm sad that it didn't get a theatrical release at the time because it's, I mean, I'm not going to say it's... It's worthy of it. Yeah, and I'm not saying, like, it's better than A Hard Day's Night or it's worse. It's just different. <laughs> like, it it fills a different purpose. Uh, you know, it's a different yeah. different film. Um, and they're sort of two pieces in the puzzle where A Hard Day's Night is very, like, scripted uh, and, and controlled in a way. Um, this is much more, you know, just sort of free form and... Just, I don't know, a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, it has all the qualities that the most amazing documentaries have. Like, it really, it puts you in the moment. It really captures the mood of what's going on. Um, It's, like, deeply empathetic. Yeah. I noticed in watching the making of video with uh, interviews with Albert Males is how, you know, he talks about how much he like he didn't know who the Beatles were, and then he yeah. um, he talked about just how much he really grew to like them, and you can see that. Like there's such humanity, um, yeah. and he's an interesting person. Albert Males is. I mean, he was a psychology professor at Boston University before he became oh, wow. a filmmaker, um, and you can see that sort of just yeah. sort of an interest in why people tick. I guess. Uh, yeah. really informs all of his films um, and just this real interest in in showing who people are and, you know, in a very sort of loving way, I guess. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. People need to have attention paid, whether they're celebrities or ordinary people. Uh, the act of recognition is a very worthwhile one and a good one for people. And uh, uh, knowing in my heart that it was good for them. It'd be good for the people who look at the film. It'd be good for us in making the film. You know, um, I felt good about it, and I knew, and and that that helped to 
establish trust. And uh, it's the way you look at somebody, and it's the empathizing, um, the love, if you will, that you uh, share with them that uh, gives you that kind of access. And uh, we like these guys a lot. And one thing that really uh, jumped out at me from watching that making of was that they got the notice, like they got this job two hours before the plane landed in New York. Did you catch that? Holy shit. Yeah. He said he, they got a call from, um, what was the name of the company that produced oh, right, it? right, from Granada TV. And, two, and then they just like, in the car. Like, hey, hey, Albert and David, there's a plane landing with the Beatles in two hours, and we were thinking of making a movie. You want the gig? <laughs> And so they just like dropped everything and followed the Beatles for the next couple of weeks. Like that is mind blowing to me. There was no pre-production. Like the pre-production was them making sure they had enough film and enough tape for the audio and then just like hopping in the car and going to the, to the airport. That's their pre-production. And also Albert going, the Beatles? Hang on one second. Yeah. David, who are the Beatles? Are they good? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, they're cool. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so facet. Like, that just was jaw-dropping to me, the fact that they just were able to, you know, drop everything and, and do well, this. Well, and I think that also shows, like, Granada had no – like, I don't think they gave them any – guidelines or, or like I really think they were just like well you know what we should have somebody there to film that just in case C- call somebody in New York and see if they can just follow the boys around in case we need we get some footage we might be able to use mm-hmm. or something clearly they were just given carte blanche to do whatever they wanted as well yeah oh for sure like there wouldn't have been yeah Granada it seems like they were just like hey let's you know again we have like x amount of dollars like with a hard <laughs> day's night it. it was like let's capitalize on this and I don't yeah. know who, like, Granada, like, if they were hired or if, you know, you can't just have some random TV show that's unaffiliated with the Beatles saying, hey, let's do a documentary. So, like, obviously they are in touch with Beatles management. Deal. Yes. I think I think uh, Brian Epstein had worked out. Okay. They had a deal. The Beatles had a deal with Granada because they did several TV performances okay. for them also. Yeah. So, like, but it's, it's interesting that they – you know, last minute, unless they had another crew that dropped Somebody out. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but maybe. for them to last minute be like, hey, <laughs> they were big enough to get the phone call, but small enough to be able to take the job. Yeah. And it worked out perfectly. Yeah. So it was interesting to me watching this film directly after A Hard Day's Night, mm-hmm. which I know you did as well. Yeah. Um, like you said, the sort of universe of A Hard Day's Night compared with the opening of that film and just like the sheer pandemonium. Yeah. Absolute insanity. At like, like the press conference at the airport, the throngs of girls outside, at the cars. Real true Beatlemania. Yeah. It was so real. Like you don't need anybody to sit and pontificate about it. You don't you don't need to say a word about it. It's like everything you need to know about Beatlemania you got in like the those first two or three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And what really struck me about the beginning of the film is how they the Beatles themselves seemed I don't wanna say they seemed like not really surprised, but like they you get the sense that cool. they didn't know what to expect when they landed in America. Like, yeah. it could have been 
20 people greeting them or 5,000. Like they, you get the sense that they really weren't sure of how big they were or what to expect and that they were a little shell-shocked almost. There's the the (laughs) car ride from the airport and they're all just so excited and they, they strike me as so young in this movie. Like they are just babies and they're looking out the window and all the girls are screaming and you can really see in their faces. They're just like, holy crap. Like we did this, you guys, (laughs) like this is America and we're huge here. Oh my God. Like you really get this sense that they're just so excited and happy and um, just like, thrilled and and nervous and you just get this whole tumble of happy emotions when they first when they first arrive the fact that paul is carrying that little transistor radio around with him and he's listening to like their songs on the radio and and as and as soon as they get to the hotel room they're watching the news coverage on tv and they're reading the newspapers that are covering their arrival and like they're just so like delighted with all of that's going on. And you get some of that with Brian Epstein too. Like he's really delighted with what's going on. And they're all just kind of like, we, we expected a warm reception, but oh my God, this is amazing. Like they're so excited and they're so happy. Uh, and you really, you, you get that less and less as the film goes on and they kind of get used to the reception. But at the beginning, it's just, it's delightful. They're so happy and they're so excited yeah. and they're so, they're just like little kids on Christmas morning. Um, just so excited. They seem a little bit nervous too. And, yeah. and um, <clears throat> one difference you really see between this and A Hard Day's Night is that in a hard day's night, they're really like in charge of the situation. Like they are sort of their own bosses. Like, hey, let's take off. Let's go frolic. Let's, you know, whatever. But in this, they really feel kind of handled in a way that's that's uh, realistic. Like, of course, they're handled. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, they're a rock band and they have managers and they don't know where they're going next. Uh, and so right, right. it's more about... Um, you know, they're kind of looking to others, like, is this where we're supposed to be? Okay, now we have to go here. Now we're doing this. And it's more playing along. And I don't, like, I know that can sound negative in a way, but they're more, I don't know. They're 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 doing their job. They're yeah. there to do a job and they're looking to others to tell them what to do. And they're hitting they're their marks. They're being corralled. They're what? <laughs> they're being corralled. They're, yeah, so. they're being corralled in a way that's like, of course they are, you know. Yeah, right. Yes, of course. Yeah, so yeah, I, I have, found that uh, interesting because it's um, it's much more realistic than what you get in A Hard Day's Night where they're um, sort of, you know, just doing their walking own Walking around just telling people to stuff <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is very unprofessional, obviously. And in um, the first U.S. tour, it's, you know, it's much more they're there to do a job. And their managers are telling them what to do, and they're responding to the press in a way that's fun, but also appropriate and not rude. Right, and right. you know, even though the, well, that, the press is being super rude to them, did that strike absolutely. you? Absolutely, they're doing an amazing job at, at being just the right of sassy. Yeah, you know, back to the press or whatever. Yeah. The very first taste of that press bullshit mm-hmm. is in the opening, like they're at like the at the airport. airport yeah, and that's. At, yeah, seriously. Um, but they got like 50 people screaming at them, and they answer a few 
questions, and they're they're so good. Yeah. They hit like ten good one liners. Yeah. And they're just on. Don't get me wrong. It it would be horrifying to be one person up there. Yeah. Having to do yeah. that, but you know, definitely helpful that there's four of you and you can all pass off, and you know, somebody's going to come up with a funny line. Right. And yeah. I, they've heard these questions before. It's not like this is the first time anybody's asked them about their hair. You know, (laughs) so they have their stock answers probably already. Dumb questions, yeah. They're dumb questions. No no one's asking. But they're so surprisingly hostile. Like, can you sing? (laughs) The press, you mean? Yeah, the press is very hostile to them. Like, can you sing? What's the deal with your hair? You know, I don't know. They just seem like dicks, kind of asking these questions. But it makes sense because this is like. Newspaper reporters that are all kind of old and grizzled and like, do we got to cover these assholes? Like, you know, whatever. I'm just doing a job here. Whatever. I'd rather be covering, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis or whatever. Right, like, right. this yeah. is not going to win me a freaking Pulitzer, but here I am. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you really get that. Like, these reporters all just like need to prove that they're cool because they're not falling victim to Beatlemania. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the, and then the Beatles managed to like deflect every single question yeah. and charm everybody, and like everybody's laughing, like they're everyone's like, God damn it, I like these. Guys. Yeah, what the fuck? and you got to think these reporters, like they're like, I'm gonna, this is a gotcha question. I'm gonna ask about their haircuts, and that'll get them. <laughs> or something. I don't know. It makes sense that the press would still be kind of like doubting, like thinking that like, oh, I got to cover this flash in the pan. It's no Frank Sinatra. The photo shoot in Central Park. Yes. <laughs> they were such good sports. Yeah. But again, they're they're used to it by now, I guess. Um, why did they use like a like a four-year-old girl as a prop? I don't know. Whose child what? was that? And what I have no idea. That was cute, but also right? weird. They've done some stupid photo shoots and yeah. I mean, even by that point they'd done stupid photo shoots with like costumes mm-hmm. and Dumb shit, you know, it's like, how many times can you get photographed? So you do Santa hats and, you know, whatever. (laughs) But, like, here's a random child. Hold the child. Yeah, I would love to know the backstory on that. Like, was she just some kid at the park or... I don't think she was a model. I don't think anybody hired a child to be in the photo. I have no idea. But but what purpose does that serve? It's so weird. What is that for? I don't know. Well, and yeah, I have no idea. Because it's not like one of the photographers brought their kid to work. I don't think so. But even if they did, it would be like, okay, do you mind taking a picture with my daughter? Okay, great. And then you'd take one picture. They take turns, like, yeah, yeah, and like now kiss her and now hold her on your shoulders. Yeah, it's weird. That's why I wonder if it really, like, literally, they're in Central Park. It made me wonder if some kid just ran onto the shoot and they were like, oh, she's cute or something. Like, I mean, I'm not, like, parents were there or something. I have no idea. Because <laughs> I never really thought about it before, but for whatever reason this time, I really stopped and was like, what the fuck? Like, first of all, okay, these press guys are not, like, artists, right? Yeah. They're not doing this for their art. No. It's just, like, it's literally a fucking job for them. Yeah. They're in the union, yep. whatever. Yep, yep. Um, so I wonder if maybe they were like, 
what do we do to make these pictures a little unique? Like, let's do something different. And they don't have any ideas. I wonder if she won a contest or something. Maybe it was the local, you know, except it would be a teenager. Was it to prove that they weren't uh, threatening? But they're not. Well, I was going to say, but they're not threatening. But apparently to the, you know, the parents of the, <laughs> of the boomers well, in 1964. They will fuck your daughter, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, for sure. What I thought was interesting about that whole photo shoot sequence, too, is the deleted scene or the cut scene from the making of video um, that shows the press uh, fighting with, I don't know if it was Brian... Epstein or if it was a, the oh, manager's right, member right. and they were like really pissed off because the manager was saying like, look, we don't have room in the hotel room for all of you press. Yeah. We're all, so we're only going to take the wire services. We're going to take like, you know, AP yep. uh, and, you know, whatever, like just a select few. And then, then there was like this mutiny. All the other ones are like, yeah. what the hell? I've been, I've been here since 9 a.m. And now you're telling me I yeah, can't go up. And totally. so. Like my editor told me to come back with blah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah, I, blah, right. Blah. I'm not leaving without a picture of the Beatles. And it made it, it was, was kind of unclear. It was hard to hear what people were saying. And it was kind of unclear in the, the making of. But it kind of looked like they changed the location. They said, okay, look, instead of the hotel, we'll go to Central Park and we'll do this. So, like, that whole thing was kind of interesting where you have this, like, these these newspaper men who are all, like, kind of pissed off to be there covering the Beatles in the first place. And then they're pissed yeah. off because they are they might not even they don't have get this. And they got to go back to their editors and say they couldn't get in. And then, like, it it was really interesting. And, again, speaks to this idea that. Maybe they didn't realize how popular they were going to be. What else can I tell you? This is for three, right? Upstairs, three people. Three, yeah. The, uh, one is sick. Nobody's getting to him. Right? No, he's in bed. He will not be out of bed well. until the television show. And I thought it was interesting that, uh, that George wasn't there, and I noticed it in the actual documentary, and then in the making of, they mentioned that he had a sore throat and he was uh, yeah, home, which, you know, maybe he's not sick sick, but he's an artist and he's going to be resting his voice. Like that felt so real to me. Yeah. Like the press, that's, you know, that's the icing on the cake, but I'm, my job is to do this concert tonight and I need to be in good vocal form. You know, I'm, I was just picturing George sitting in the hotel room drinking, you know, honey and lemon tea yeah. and, you know, like resting his voice. And that just, to me, that spoke to kind of the professionalism of the band. Like, you know, they're there to do a job and, um, yeah. And that's really what their focus is. And and you can understand why a lot of that was cut mm. because ultimately you want to see the Beatles. Yeah. You don't like that that stuff is interesting, but it's not as interesting as like Yeah, for sure. The Beatles' cute little faces and yeah. you know. Yeah. Like f- fooling around in their hotel room. Yeah. Like that's the that's the money. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. The other thing that jumped out to me in the beginning, like you know, after they come back from the airport and all the pandemonium outside, is that the hotel room, even though it was filled with people, the Maisels and Brian and his secretary and you know whatever the porter or you know whoever Murray the K, um, <laughs> even then it seemed like such a sane, quiet oasis. Yeah. When you, when you look at the craziness outside, you can understand why that was sort of their sacred place for many years was, was the hotel rooms. Yeah. 
they definitely just seemed comfortable and still, you know, obviously still performing for the camera um, and, you know, sort of goofing off, you know, being on in a way that they wouldn't if they were just completely alone. But yeah, it, you, they definitely were just kind of relaxing and chilling. There's a great moment, again, in one of the cut scenes. I wish that these were in the movie, but in one of the cut scenes, mm-hmm. there's a moment where there's a woman and she's talking on the phone and she says something like, oh, they're, we're going to get a call from London in 15 minutes or something. Yeah. And then Ringo says, do you think we could have a rest from these cameras for 15 minutes? Thank you. What's happening? 15 minutes. They'll call back. I think we can have a rest from these cameras for 15 minutes. What kind of... Like yeah, the idea with, a, the, with like a direct cinema documentary filmmakers, like as you know, their, their goal is to just blend into the background, right? And yeah. you're just there capturing what's going on. And ideally, uh, you're sort of embedded with your subject for long enough that, that they s- sometimes forget you're, that you're there. And so you know, eventually you go through your footage and you can find those authentic moments, you know, those moments of truth. Um, but those those authentic moments are so few and far between because, you know, I mean, think about it. If you had a camera person sitting in your face, you, you're you aware of it and you change your behavior yeah. because you know you're on camera. So, yeah, right. I, no matter how much you like them. Yeah. So I really felt for Ringo and for all of them, like they're in their hotel room and they're chilling but, you know, the camera is there. At one point, you can see in the background, there's a still photographer taking pictures, uh, like, again, right in their face. At one point, there, there's um, Albert Males is with the, the film camera on one side of Paul. And on the other side of Paul is a photographer taking still oh, right. photos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul is looking straight ahead, talking to the rest of the guys, just sort of trying to act natural. But my God, what an unnatural situation. Um, right. Like he's literally between. Yeah. He's like, it's like a <laughs> yeah. whole camera sandwich or something. Yeah. And, and I, so I kind of felt for them at times, you know, Ringo saying, God, could we take a break from these cameras or, um, yeah, it, especially at the beginning, everything is so charged and excited and nervous at the beginning that I'm sure they just wanted time to decompress. Like what a freaking whirlwind when they first landed and, Everybody's screaming and it's crazy and you're going on Ed freaking Sullivan. So like what an insane sequence of a long flight. Yeah. What a day. Right. They're jet lagged and they're tired and, you know, George isn't feeling well. And And then they've got people shoving microphones Mm -hmm. on their face and making them do radio stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. That DJ with the hat. Like Murray the K, man. He is the worst. He's the worst. (laughs) But, um, <laughs> he was ridiculous. Yeah. He thought he was one of the guys. Oh, poor Murray. The guy. Yeah. I, I feel like he he realized at some point he was not cool. The more time he spent with the Beatles, like the slow realization that like I am a middle-aged fraud. Yeah. And I am not cool. And I am so embarrassed that I thought I was cool last week. Right. You know? Like, I, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's almost not even his fault. No. It was his job and he was probably good at his job. It's just that like, you know, 
things are changing so yeah. quickly. And, like, by the time the Beatles show up, they're like, yeah, enough of that shit. Right. Enough of, like, like stupid middle-aged guys trying to sound hip. Right. Like, on the right. Like, yeah. this is bullshit. Yeah. And he just sounded so, uh, so terrible. Yeah. And awkward and, like. Yeah, like, oh. hey, fellow young people, how are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's like that meme of yep. Buscemi. Yep, that's exactly. <laughs> he is that walking meme. It's so funny. But how oh. much did you love when they were filming him in the studio, uh, the woman behind him, who was just know, rocking so out? Cute. She's, I love her so much. Murray the K. He was, he was a character. But yeah, I felt for the Beatles. They, like, they I'm sure they just wanted to decompress. They were good sports. Yeah. Like they, and they were nice to him. Yeah. The thing is, they kind of kneeled him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But they, um, but they weren't dicks. They were doing their job. Like, that's the thing that really yeah, shone right. through to me. These are professional artists. And they're young. Like, you can definitely see in their unguarded moments that they're all, you know, early 20 guys who are playing grab ass and, you know, goofing around. But yeah, yeah. But they're also professionals there to do a job. And so they're not going right. to like shit on the DJ who's giving them tons of airtime right. and promoting their work. You know, like they they got it. And, you know, I really I appreciated that about Respect them. That. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's like it doesn't solve anything, mm-hmm. to, you know. To be an asshole. Yeah. Right. Like, why do they <laughs> really want to write at this point in their careers? Why are they going to be labeled as, you know, difficult or <laughs> jerks? Like, they're there to play along. Yeah. You know, the Beatles are not. They're not ass kissers, but they're not dicks. Yeah. yeah you got to, you got to, like, land somewhere in the middle. And mm-hmm. I thought they did a good job, always, really, of, of landing in the middle of that. Yeah. Like, I also just found them so cute with their little radios all the time. They're just so precious. Like, you just want to hang out with them. just adorable. And, yeah, but they were also, like, really overwhelmed. Like, holy cow, we're, we are very popular. <laughs> the Americans like us. You know, they just seemed yeah. absolutely tickled with that. And the fact that, yeah, that Paul's running around with his little transistor radio and he's just listening to the Beatles on the radio. <laughs> it's just the <laughs> cutest thing ever in the world. And they're reading the newspaper. And I think it was Paul notices one of the lines that somebody said in response to the press. <laughs> like, uh, I think the press asked about their hair and somebody said, oh, yeah, we're actually bald. Like, you can tell that they're really tracking and processing their own fame. And I don't really, like, obviously, you know a hell of a lot more than I do about how famous they were before this tour. Beatlemania was already a thing. You know, they were huge in Britain. They'd already played for the Queen at the Royal Variety Mm -hmm. Program and all that sort of stuff. And they were, they were, they were sort of moving into Western Europe a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But they always thought of America as like, a totally different ball game. Yeah. You know, that's a big thing. And they were skeptical that they were going to make it because there really hadn't been any acts, it, any British acts that had made it over in the U S. Yeah. I mean, that's the big leagues, be, right? Exactly. Oh, I think so. They said, told Brian, like, we'll go over when we have a number one. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and there's a cut scene where somebody, I think it's George is talking on the phone to somebody and he's saying yeah we've got three number ones and he's like so excited about it and like we've got three number ones here and like yeah although you know in fairness to George you know it sounds funny because we're American and so we're like whatever what's the big deal with America but um 
when you hear him, he's saying like, yeah, she loves you sold two million records or mm-hmm. something. It's like, Jesus, that's a fuckload of records. Well, yeah. Yeah, it really a is. A number one in America <laughs> is a big deal. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I totally get like, I mean, America, success in America for a British band, like that's the difference between being the Beatles and being like Jerry and the pacemakers or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Robbie Williams. Yeah. Like you, I mean, how many famous, you know, British acts are there right now that people in the United States have never heard of? And I'm not saying like, you know, the United States, like, decides who gets to be famous but like that it's a huge market it did for a while yeah it's a huge market and it's um you know that's like worldwide success and it seems like what really struck me in this documentary was that the Beatles really didn't know they didn't have a sense for whether they were going to break into this market and and really find that success and that they were thrilled to discover like oh yeah okay we don't have anything to worry about like a big huge relief now yeah it's fun yeah now you can just enjoy yourself and man do you get that in the movie like after the first ed sullivan appearance it's just fun times like yeah you can it's it's amazing to me you like the whole beginning the landing at the airport and the first night in the hotel and everything it's there's just this tension right there's this this nervousness hanging over all of them and it it's like this nervous excitement and then when they go on Ed Sullivan, it's a little bit rough. Like, Ringo looks like he's going to throw up. <laughs> he looks so nervous to me. And um, and Paul is just freaking adorable. He is just working yeah, he it really so hard. And he's he so, so happy. He's so but almost like manically happy. Like, he doesn't seem relaxed happy. Like, John looks scared. Yes. And George is unreadable, so I don't know. <laughs> Ringo looks like he's going to puke. And Paul yeah. is just like, he's like, I'm going to freaking sell this. And I, you like, he's, yeah. he's like really happy, but it's almost seems like he's making himself. Like he's, he's almost manic. Like it's nervous happiness. It seemed to me. Like that's how I was reading it, you know, based on sort of how nervous and how happy and how excited and like all of this rush of emotions you get from them before they go on Sullivan. I thought they nailed it. Like I do think that they were nervous, mm-hmm. but I think each perf- each song gets better. Yes. I thought the song, the song choice was interesting. If we could just talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Because I hadn't really made note of it before. Like I, I didn't research it mm-hmm. or anything i just watched it as it, as it happened uh-huh. but i thought it was interesting that their first performance so they did all my loving mm-hmm. till there was you she loves you and i want to hold your hand uh-huh. two were big singles so that makes sense and then i thought all my loving until there was you were very interesting choices for like the opening like the first time america has seen the Beatles, i have always right? thought that Till There Was You is such a random choice for a Beatles song. It's like kids today, boy, they love them some Meredith Wilson 1950s musicals about small town Iowa. I love Till There Was You. I love it too. But I'm like, I'm a musical theater geek. So I love The Music Man and I love the Beatles cover of it. So like, I have no problems with their version of it but it still yeah, yeah, seems yeah. to me but you're saying it's a random it's a choice, random choice. Well, like here's the thing though it's it's um it's a 
wonderful showcase for Paul's yeah. range and his singing. Yeah. And he nailed it. Oh, yeah. On, on Ed, he did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's a nice it's a nice um, showcase for George, too, because yeah. George nailed the solo. Yeah, yeah. So it's really good for the two of them. And I just like I just like it as a song. I do too. Like I know it's it's you know it's supposed to be corny or whatever, but I don't hear you know to me I just hear that melody line and his singing of it. I mean that's all it is to me. Yeah, to me. no. But if you think about their other covers like Twist and Shout and Money and like their well the rest rock of songs. the the rest of their covers are most of them are sort of um, predictable. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's a few covers um, of Paul's that are unpredictable that give them a sort of depth, in, to my view, mm-hmm. like Till There Was You, and he did A Taste of Honey. Oh, that's true. And he yeah. he used to do Besame Mucho. Nice. That was part of their, their act as well. Uh-huh. And, like, I really like all those. Yeah. Like, to me, that makes them interesting. They're, they're, like, a little more than, like, a guitar band you know not that there's anything wrong with you know chuck berry covers right because chuck berry's terrific you know um but every band was doing chuck berry covers yeah every rock you know band of of their peer group i like i like that it just makes them more interesting it gives them depth and there's something really cool about it like it just makes them it's it makes them slightly eccentric to be not concerned yeah. With, like, that being cool or whatever. And I guess they're repurposing. Like, Till There Was You was a big hit. And The Music Man was only a f- couple of years. It's late 50s. So, like, this is a song that was a big hit just a few years before The Beatles, you know, became, you know, uh, yeah. decided to cover it. So, I. I I don't know. It, I, like, it still seems weird to me. But I guess I think it was probably covered a lot. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I, I'm sure you don't have to dig too far to find, you know, a Rosemary Clooney cover of yeah. it or whatever. No, like, it's, not, it's not an obscure choice. Oh, yeah. It's just, a, it's just an unusual choice. It's just— And I'm sure that there are jazz covers. And I'm, I 100% am sure there are jazz covers. I mean, I don't know if Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Armstrong—you know, some somebody has done a cover of this song. So it's not that random a choice. But— now, with the perspective of time, you know, all these years later, it seems like there's such a huge break between musical theater and the Beatles. Like, yeah. it seems like those are two entirely different universes that never intersect. And so this one intersection has always struck me as so interesting. And so just what an interesting choice for them. And I'm sure at the time it was much more logical than it seems now. Well, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because it shows – I mean, here's the thing. We talked about this a little bit um, with the press, mm-hmm. you know, attacking them. The press being skeptical and the entire, like, establishment being skeptical mm-hmm. of the Beatles, right? And, like, they're just a fad and why are all these t- teeny bumpers screaming and, you know, it's stupid pop music or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they open with All My Loving, which is a really strong Lennon McCartney yeah. original – you know, really, really strong, good songwriting there. Um, they do a cover of a familiar song, which which shows like, oh, actually, that's pretty good. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, they have a different sound, but they can, even when they interpret a song that we know, that's a more traditional whatever, like, 
they kind of nailed that too. Mm-hmm. And then they move into their big ones. And it's like by the time they're done with She Loves You, like they kill yeah. so good. Yeah. Everybody is 100% sold by then. Yeah. Oh, know? yeah. They really, really warm up uh, and are and they, a lot of fun by the end. Right. And I feel like just even those three songs show like more versatility yeah. than you're expecting. Yeah. That's for sure. And then, and then they finish with I Want to Hold Your Hand. She loves you, and I want to hold your hand. Both to me, they have both kind of the same energy mm-hmm. of just that that euphoric yeah. energy that is they just invented. Like it just didn't exist before. Like that that's the that's the thing about them that is to me that I think is alien and groundbreaking, and that made everybody freak out is that that that, that just listening to that. It, makes you feel euphoric yeah it's just so good i actually this is embarrassing but <laughs> i actually cried watching that i want to hold your hand it was just the emotions yeah in it so intense yeah and real like you feel them like you, you don't they're not faking it it's just joyful yeah it just feels like joy yeah. and like being in love and i think that's why everybody fell in love with mm-hmm. them they made them feel that yeah it's pretty intense absolutely yeah and when i say that it was rough. I don't mean that it was bad. I just mean it wasn't like <laughs> polished. And I agree with you. It was you. live. Yeah. It was very much live. <laughs> and I do think that like everybody just looks kind of a little bit deer in the headlights when it starts. Like even <laughs> Paul and Paul covers it the best, but everybody is kind of like, holy shit, this is it. We're on Ed Sullivan right now. This is the culmination of everything. Like this is a make or break moment for us. And you, I feel like you get that from them at the beginning of it and they ease into it which yeah. explains like the whole the the peppermint club like how they just are yeah. like yes thank god we did it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so celebratory and so joyful once they are done on Ed Sullivan and they get to the club. And yeah, because so- they pulled it off. Yeah. They really pulled it off. Yeah. I uh, One of my notes says editing is exquisite. Like, yeah. The editing throughout this movie It's is fantastic, incredible. yeah. And the, the Peppermint Lounge is just so fun and so awesome. You're really in that nightclub. That band is killing it. Mm-hmm. You're right up there on the dance floor. That was amazing. Yeah. Paul is trashed. <laughs> John is trash. Yeah, like it was, it they're just—you really just feel like they've been carrying all this tension and weight, and they did the thing, and they did a great job. I'm sure that they were like, "Fuck it, we're going out. I don't give yeah. a shit." And I love that, like, like Murray the K, like they have to go with Murray the K because they don't know anybody in New York. They're just like, uh-huh. "You just take us to wherever the the cool place to dance is." Yeah. Yeah, that's just a, such a fun, joyous night after Ed Sullivan. And I love the story that's on uh, the outtakes where Albert Males says that he that he and David weren't allowed to go into the theater because of union rules. There could only you couldn't yeah. bring it. You know, you can have another camera crew come in uh, and film. Yeah. So they just like literally walked up the street to a tenement building, to an apartment building and, and listened for the Beatles and then just knocked on somebody's door and said, Hey, you guys are watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Can we come in and film you? And, uh, and the people were like, sure. And so they went in and yeah. they filmed this family watching Ed Sullivan and the footage is lovely. i it's so sad yeah. that it I, w- wasn't in the, the actual film because it's, it's fantastic footage. 
It really is. It's it's really good. Like I I understand that it would probably have slowed down. Yeah. The Beatle the Beatle film. I get that part, but like, but also I I'm kind of sad that we left it out of the cut because honestly, like that is problem solving right there. Yeah. That is some grade A problem solving. <laughs> it really is. And I love just the ballsiness of like, let's just go yes. listen for the Beatles and knock on some doors. And but that is really that's really <laughs> courageous. That's really getting the job yeah. done. Yeah. It's a fantastic yeah. scene. Uh, it's that was probably my favorite. Well, no, not my. I don't know. One of my favorite of the cutscenes. And and it's a really again, you know, is a nice is a nice intimate like view into a normal family. Yeah. In 1964. Yeah. The, song, yeah. the songs go. I saw her standing there. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Yeah, so another performance that I, I really loved is the Washington, D.C. concert. Uh, that was that fantastic. Was this will probably not surprise you either, but I have not seen a lot of live concert footage of the Beatles from Ooh, this time yeah. period. And so, um, and I've often wondered, like, why, why the Beatles, you know? Because, like, looking back in retrospect, the Beatles make sense, like their fame and their, like every, it just makes sense. It's like, of course, they're, they're amazing. They're brilliant. But I, I've always wondered in 1964, what it was about the Beatles that really just, you know, lit that match and watching them on stage in Washington, DC. It's like, oh yeah. Oh, I get it. Like 100%. I get it. Yeah. They're so electric that you cannot yeah. take your eyes off of them it's they're so they're just tight and they're yeah. energetic and they're fun yeah. and they're the energy is just amazing and so yeah yeah I love that concert footage I love them live when they open with I saw her standing there like mm -hmm. that performance is just fire yeah yeah <laughs> So they did, I saw you standing there, I want to be your man, and she loves you again, and they kill it. Like, the thing is that, like, for all the all the times that they play She Loves You in this film, uh -huh. like, I don't get tired of right. it. Right. Yeah, it's a great song. They're just such a great live band. I mean, it seems like a yeah. silly thing to say, because of course they are, but I, just unbelievably good. Like, you just totally yeah. get it. Like, that's all you need to see, and it's like, oh, Yeah. Of course they became the Beatles because look at them. And they're so well, like they so come alive in front of that live audience in a way that I felt like they didn't yeah. on Sullivan. Yeah, I could see that. Yes, for sure. For sure cuz they've got cameras yeah. on them. Like obviously they were filmed for Washington DC, but they're not playing to the camera yeah. in Washington. Yeah. You got to hit your spot and you got to stay in your light and you got to you know worry about right. yeah, like there's so much going on whereas in yeah, DC Yeah, you got close-ups and they're going to see the sweat coming yeah, down your face. Yeah, what you and, do. You know, <laughs> Yeah, and then the other thing when they're when they're in Washington D.C., they're basically operating as their own roadies, like they're moving all their own equipment around. Yeah. And I love that Ringo gets up on stage and the drum kit's facing the wrong way, and he's like, uh, he kind of looks around, and then he just starts yeah. turning it by himself. 
there's that moment in the first Ed Sullivan performance where he comes on and says, Elvis Presley sent a telegram <laughs> saying congratulations to the Beatles. Yep. I've always thought that was so stupid. It's like, who get out of here. Stop, you know. I wonder if that. Stop taking up time. I want the Beatles. Yeah, but, I wonder if that was a thing on Sullivan because in a, I think it was in Miami or one of the other performances, he says, yeah. Richard Rogers says congratulations. So. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, how Murray the K is kind of a, a, like a remnant of a the industry that they're about to kill you yeah. know? <laughs> like also Elvis is kind of like you know as much as they adore him you know they kind of killed his career sort of yeah like yeah there's footage I don't remember if it's if it made the documentary or if it's one of the cut scenes of some girls uh outside the hotel going oh, like yeah. oh Elvis oh we don't like him he's old <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, he's just, old and ugly. Yeah. He's like what, like twenty five yeah. or something. He, he wasn't cool anymore. No, at that point, no. But not even their parents, so, but their older siblings. You know, they listened to Elvis. Yeah, he wasn't cool yeah. anymore. Well, he was already in the army. Mm-hmm. He'd already gone to the army and stuff by then. Um, yeah, I think he was entering his like Viva Las Vegas, um, Hawaii. Face. Yeah, mid sixties because that was past yeah. the whole like. Don't get me wrong; I enjoy Viva Las Vegas and the and the Hawaiian one, whatever. It was. They're terrible, but yeah. at least there's Anne Margaret and <laughs> right, Vegas, right. But, um, they're trash. Yeah. It's like trash movies. But anyways, um, yeah, I always thought that Telegram was kind of embarrassing and stupid. But this this time when I saw it, it's kind of something that the industry kind of took up. Over time, mm-hmm. you know, like um, like Madonna giving Britney her seal of approval. Yeah. Or, you know, so-and-so giving whoever, you know, like whoever the older act is. Yeah, like handing off the baton or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, it's... Exactly. That, it struck me as both generous and self-serving, but yes. that... I mean, I think As these things go are yeah that like ninety yeah. percent of what happens in show business. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because like that was generous for him to very publicly say yeah. like I endorse this new act, and you know, and he wasn't sending telegrams every week, you know, for the Italian opera dudes on a hard day's night or whatever. Right. Like you, you know, this had to have been a it's big a one-time deal. act. Yeah, like this was a big deal for Elvis to very publicly endorse on Ed Sullivan in front of 70 some odd million people, this new generation or, you know, this new act. So that's great, but also linking himself, also him saying, and also I'm Elvis Presley, don't forget me. So, you know. Sure, of course, of course. Just well, sort of, it's a lot more ham-fisted than it would be today. Like, you wouldn't interrupt someone's performance to do it today, but yeah. it would be like a tweet or something. Right. Well, yeah, and that's exactly what it, you know, today it would be a tweet. But back then, well, yeah. and he wasn't interrupt. Like, Ed Sullivan was the one. Well, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although Elvis had to have telegrammed, sent the telegram to Ed Sullivan, which is also weird. Like, why wouldn't he just <laughs> send a telegram to Brian Epstein or something like well, he might have. He might. He well, might and have. you see later Brian sending a telegram back to Elvis. Yeah, like I'm. It might have been like a whole thing that they staged. Yeah, yeah, probably. And then <laughs> we know, don't. We don't hear the telegram machine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's. It also seemed like a surprise to them. Like later when uh, Ed Sullivan says that Richard Rogers 
sent a telegram. That one sound, seemed like a surprise. Yeah. And <laughs> Paul's face was hilarious. Yeah. I Well, I got the sense that that meant something to them. You know, that's a big name. It's and it's nice. Like, yeah. That is, that is a that seems like a very American thing. Yeah. And Richard Rogers, like there's nothing in it for him. Like this is, you yeah. know, He's not. He's not gonna. It's all the kids aren't gonna start fan fangirl. Like Richard I'm Rogers. gonna go out and buy the My Fair Lady soundtrack now because right. you know Richard Rogers is endorsed. <laughs> you know, wait, 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 that's not that's not uh, Richard Rogers. Sorry, the Oklahoma soundtrack. There we go. South Pacific. South Pacific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rogers and Hammerstein. I was getting him confused um, with Lerner and Lowe. That's I gotta turn in my. Uh, I I confuse them with. Um, Oh shit! I Rogers and Hart, right? Which is Richard Rogers? Is that what is that what you just said? No. Oh, this wait. It's still Richard Rogers. He wrote. Oh, I see. It's his other part. Yeah, he wrote with. Uh, <laughs> what a whore! He, he wrote with Lawrence Hart before he teamed up with Oscar Hammerstein. Oh, okay. I I totally thought it was a different Rogers. No, no, no. Richard Rogers. Oh. So that oh, was wow. like in the thirties. Uh, 40s. And I mean, gorgeous, like the way you look tonight. I mean, you know, beautiful, beautiful songs yeah, yeah. that he wrote. Um, there's your musical theater. Well, th- and lineage. see, that, that, that's a big deal, too, that they've been endorsed by one, by both, by two. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? The, like two different, um, because honestly, the Beatles aren't just, they're not the Rolling Stones, you know? Mm-hmm. They, they, they're not just like a, a stupid rock and roll band. So it's good that they're endorsed by Elvis, but it's also good that they're endorsed by um, Richard Rogers and, you know, somebody with a real sizable songbook. And honestly, that's going to mean more to to most, well, to most of Ed Sullivan's audience, too. That's true. Like, exactly. you know, exactly. let's be honest. It's not the, you know, the boomers were there. The, the baby boomers were there to watch the, babies. the, the Beatles. Rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. But their parents were watching because they want to watch, you know, the the opera act or whatever. They want to watch Topo <laughs> right, right. Gigio beforehand. So, like. But that was my point about Till There Was You. Yeah. That selection, I think, yep. is very smart. Well, yeah, that's going to, that's saying, hey, parents of the boomers, you know, like, we're, we sing your music too. <laughs> like, we're the re- well, we're the real deal. Yeah. Like we, like we can do, we can do all of it. Yeah, yeah. Which they can, and of course they, you know, ended up writing songs. I mean, I think at that time they have songs that are as good as whatever mm-hmm. a lot of our standards. Yeah, I mean, they've become standards. Yeah, yeah. Lots of you know, Lennon McCartney songs. On the train, yes. there was a cutscene. Well, no, there are two things on the train that I loved. There was the little girl that Ringo befriends yeah. because Ringo is friend to children. This little girl goes over and just starts talking to him, and they become buds. And so he takes her back <laughs> to meet George or to John and Paul and introduces them. And it is so sweet. But then on the train, also, and this is one of the deleted scenes. Um, Paul and George being super interested in the uh, the males' filmmaking equipment. Yeah. And they were, like, super interested in how the the audio uh, tape recorder was synced to the camera because they weren't, like, connected by a cable. They had, um, like, a watch in them that, that syn- they used to synchronize uh, the, the audio and the video. They were fascinated by it. And at one point... Um, I think it was Paul or George. One of them asks, oh, is the camera on? Are you filming right now? And Al was like, 
Yep. <laughs> but <laughs> what, what that tells me is that this was just a really unguarded, sort of authentic moment. They weren't acting for the camera. Like, they were yeah, just right, genuinely, right. like, really interested. And then um, David mails is, um, has the audio, the... the I, I guess there must have been some sort of a delay on it so you could say yeah. something and then hear yourself back. And all the boys were like taking turns with that and they were so delighted with that technology and having so much fun with it. Who's talking? And I love that moment. That might be my favorite moment and it didn't even make the movie. Um, yeah. But it's it's just delightful. It's so sweet and it's so... Like, they're just so Genuine. interested, and you just get such a sense yeah. of them as human beings. Like, you know, this isn't them yeah. putting on a performance or hamming it up. It's just them just being normal. And they were so, like, friendly with uh, Albert and David and, uh, you know, just hanging out and talking and interested in these other people. And it, they weren't, you know, it wasn't all about them. They're not these stuck-up celebrities. They're just sort of generous and kind and, yeah. and interested and, yeah. Genuine. Genuine. Genuine, curious people. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that a lot. This is because you're hearing it. Not now. Are you filming now? Yeah. Without looking. He made that camera. He's looking through that. He made it himself. He's got a great eye then, Alton. to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. They really... Genuine, just like, you know, zest for life and, yeah. you know, curiosity mm -hmm. and, like, all that stuff comes out. Yeah. I mean, I can see why it, it's a little self-referential to sort of put it in a movie. Like, I yeah. can see why you cut it, but... Um, this is so stupid, like, because it's so small, but it kind of blew my mind. They would slate at the end of a take. Yeah. For some reason, I was like, holy shit, that had never occurred to me. Of course you can slate at the right. end of the tape. But it makes more – like, you're so used to the slate at the beginning of the tape that it's like, yes. oh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can slate at the end. Like, yeah, and I love how they had to get each of the Beatles to, to do a slate. That's a, that's a really cute way of getting them involved yeah. too, though. And I loved, like, re watching Ringo and George, like, clowning. Mm-hmm. With the, the little costumes and the hats and stuff. Yeah. Very, 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 very Ringo cute. and George had such, uh, Ringo and Paul, rather, sorry, had such great chemistry. Yeah. Oh, my God. Such. No they were so great. To, like, just adorable and yes. so tight and so fun together and just playing off of each other. And there's just such affection between the two of them. that Absolutely. you Like, all of the attention is always focused, of course, on John and Paul. But, like... Paul and Ringo, I would watch that spinoff. I know, me too. Right? That's what I thought too. It's like I want to, I want just like a whole show of Paul and Ringo yeah. as roommates. Yes, and like the wacky adventures and the fun fights that they get into. I would, I would watch the shit out of that. The hotel hijinks in Miami are pretty. They're adorable. adorable. They're so sweet. Oh my God. And you can, I just, it just feels like. The weight has been lifted, and they're just having fun at this point. And they're still hamming it up for the camera. You know, I don't know that Paul would have gone out on the balcony to feed the birds had there not been a camera watching him. Yeah. 
But you well, probably he would have. Who knows? Who knows? Um, well, <laughs> only if it was he's an animal lover, vegetarian bird food, though. <laughs> 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 as opposed to th- throwing, meat, throwing meat off the balcony. <laughs> Feeding the birds of prey off the balcony. <laughs> the hawks coming down. He's just like throwing carrion off the balcony. <laughs> yes. As one does in Miami Beach. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, frankly. <laughs> well, and then last but the not performance least. on Ed Sullivan and Brian. I loved that. Oh, the Miami, the Miami performance. performance. I thought that was so much better than the New York. Ed Sullivan performance. They are so happy singing This Boy in Miami. They were just so happy singing that song. And there's one moment where um, John does like a little, like a little run at one point. Like they're all crowded around the mic and John does like a little woo-hoo or something, Uh, whatever it is. And Paul almost laughs. Like he comes this close to (laughs) laughing and then kind of gets himself to get, like they're just happy. Uh, there's so much more joy, whereas the Ed Sullivan in New York, it seemed so much more about, like, we got to get through this. Like they're, they're, like a hurdle. Yeah, like they're almost on edge, and they're kind of nervous, and they're like, we got to, this has to be good. And by the time they get to Miami, they're like, we conquered America. We got Like, this. by then they yeah, have, totally. like, the TV returns in from New York, so they know how many people watched them. They know, they like, they've gotten most of the press out of the way they, they yeah. just seem like they can relax and have fun and they so they totally do when they're in Miami so was the Miami concert was that in a tv studio or was it in like a concert hall or like what was the venue it looked like there it probably was like the Miami affiliate yeah. Right? It's like a local TV yeah, studio yeah it didn't look something. big right so it surprises me that they didn't do a big concert like what a weird wasted opportunity that they went all the way to Miami yeah I think they only did that one Washington concert and that was it. yeah what kind of a concert tour they had like four concerts and three of them were on TV they went back pretty soon yeah after so they went they because they had just done France they had just written the whole fucking soundtrack for that's true they come to America they come back they started filming in March Mm -hmm. and this was like February, like early February or something like that. So they came back and recorded. They had to record. They went right back into the studio because yeah. they had to record all that music before they started shooting the film. Yeah. So like they had like five days off for the whole fucking year. Right. Yeah. And one of them was in Miami. They had <laughs> one day off. God, that's crazy. And they just got to like enjoy the sun. Go on the boat. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. This trip was mainly just for Ed Sullivan. They squeezed in one concert, huh. but it was really short. Like, they just went over to do that, test the waters, get the number one hit. And then after they did that, it was like, as Albert Maisel says at the end, it, it's kind of all over in terms of their fame. Like, they're just, they're, it's an it's a runaway train at that point. Yeah. Yeah, you can really sense. They, they only get bigger yeah. from there. You can just sense that this is just a, a turning point for them. It's a wildfire. Yeah. And then they ended, Maisel's ended the film with my favorite song off of 
with the Beatles. It won't be long. Yeah. And that credit se- sequence was amazing too. Mm-hmm. The end credits. Yeah. And that that boy they stopped on the street uh-huh. was so cute. Where they're like, "Excuse me, is that a beetle haircut?" He was adorable. Yeah, it's nice that they found some some boys to interview too. Because there are some. At one point, they interview some boys who are like, uh, "The Beatles are stupid," you know, like yeah, what you yeah. would expect boys from that age to say. Because you know, whatever, it's like a girl thing, and oh, boys can't like the Beatles. Well, I think it's partly that, but I think it's also partly like, what is so great about them? Exactly. Oh, you like that dumb haircut? <laughs> I have a crew cut and I'm cooler. Exactly. You know? And it's like, damn it, I'm not cooler. <laughs> what am I going to do? So they're basically all Biff from Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's what the 50s was like, right? right? That's what I base all of my uh, historical knowledge I- on. I assume that that is completely accurate. <laughs> That's what I fact-checked all my Absolutely. 1950s knowledge with. Yes. <laughs> I've been told that uh, it's no longer possible to get the, into situations that are very intimate with a camera. That people uh, are so savvy to a camera that uh, they become too camera conscious. I, I don't agree. At least it hasn't been my experience. It depends on, on who's trying to get the access and how they approach people, how they look at people. Uh, if they, as I do, empathize with them, uh, feel for them, and want to uh, represent them truthfully, people love that, and they always will. That doesn't change. All right, so... Were the characters in A Hard Day's Night consistent with the personalities in the first U.S. visit? So, yes and no. Uh, In some ways, they were. um, Because, of course, both are based on their actual personalities. But, um, you know, of course, as you know, in a documentary like, uh, you know, direct cinema documentary, Um, people are always performing for the camera. You can't forget that the camera is there. And so, you know, even though we get um, the boys, you know, being, being more themselves in the, in the males documentary, they're not ever just, there's still a camera between us and them. Exactly. They're still performing for the camera and there are some unguarded moments. um, But, you know, and, and I think if, if the Maleses had filmed them for longer, you would have more of those moments, you know? And I think that's sure, sure, often yeah. what documentarians do is stick with people for months or years and get lots of footage. Um, they were with them for like a couple of weeks. So, you know, that obviously makes a big difference. That said, you know, I think we do get insight into their personality because what we see in the documentary is at least, you know, their own sort of improvised um behaviors and actions yeah. and and language and so you do get they're performing but they're the authors of their own performances as opposed to it being yeah, scripted yeah. which we get in a hard day's night so um so Ringo I think is the most similar between the two 
Yeah. Um, yeah. He's he's a goofball. He's funny. He's he's charming. He, we don't get him in the documentary going off and being deep and like taking pictures, <laughs> but we see him befriending children in both, which is kind of adorable. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think he's probably the most similar in the yeah. two. He's affable. Yeah. You know, kind of easy, easy to get along with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like very funny. Yeah. Um. In both, really, actually, because he's funny in A Hard Day's Night, too, although he's not really the, he's not the clown in A Hard Day's Night. That's not really his role. Yeah. Um, Paul, George, and Ringo do a lot more clowning, actually, in the Maisel's film. Yeah. Whereas John is kind of the clown of A Hard Day's Night. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't, like, you see John um, joking around in the Maisel's film, and you see him cutting up and you see him, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's not the sort of slapsticky juvenile comedy that you see in a hard day's night. He's, he's more, like you said, he's more biting. He's more, um, yeah. yeah. A little, a a little edgier, a little dickier. Yeah. (laughs) A little meaner. I, yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, and you, not that he's overtly mean in the Maisel's film. Right. No, not at all. But he's, you know, he gets in a couple, a couple jokes that are a little edgy. Yeah, <laughs> a little at people's expense, a little bit. Yeah, I could Love see me that. Love whacker and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, and so, you know, his. I mean, nobody is like John is in a hard day's night. Like that's not a. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a real that's personality. Not a, that's yeah. not a realistic portrayal of anybody so that (laughs) makes sense um (laughs) so yeah I mean I don't know what they base that on um but he for sure you know he's funny he is funny but it's definitely more biting humor than than slapsticky you know it's funny John kind of has that quality when you turn the camera on him though because there's there's shades of it like also in like magical mystery tour or like even when they're shooting like the hello goodbye video was of the same era and he did like a tv performance in late 1966 where he's just kind of that that sort of impish cutesy goofy smiling you know like dancing around a lot like he you know he loves to do silly dances and um He does have like a flamboyant side where he he just kind of likes to clown for the yeah. camera, you know. Yeah. There's something about a camera that brings that out in him. Like I can't speak to what he was like behind closed doors, right? You know, but um, it's weird because he's always described by people who met him for five minutes, but also by people who know him as being like funny and sweet and jovial and you know that type of stuff but a lot of that's a performance yeah is what I'm trying to say (laughs) you know like I'm not trying to accuse him of being whatever insincere or whatever but he is a performer yeah I mean they all are right that kind of goofiness yeah I mean that's just sort of being a ham. You know, nobody is that way all the time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's even just sort of a weird task to to try to sort of separate 
the natural performer versus the scripted performer versus the real person, you know, yeah. like, there's a lot of layers and we're like, they're all illusionary to some extent. Right. Of course. So it's weird for us to be trying to figure out like what the real, where the real guy yeah, is. Yeah. Who know? is the real <laughs> John Lennon? Because then too, you're, you know, who, who was the real John Lennon in February of 1964? That's going to be different from 1968, from 1977 or, you know, like, yeah. I mean, it's futile to try and to try to figure that out. But it is interesting. Like people study the Beatles and they try to get a, like a true understanding of who they really were. And like, it's difficult because they've been famous since they were 20 or whatever. And like, Almost everything we know about them is through, like, this fog of fame. Yeah. (laughs) And the fame shaped them. Like, they weren't fully formed adults at the point that they became famous. They were still kids. And so, like, that level of fame really shaped who they are and shaped their personalities in ways that, you know, obviously they would have been very different people uh, had they not been famous. You know, of course. Right. At some point, you're coexisting with a famous version of yourself. Yeah. That's that's kind of probably over time like less and less like you or um yeah. Just sort of become especially because the like a lot of people are famous or whatever but um because there's such a fandom around them as opposed to like like say Richard Nixon for example. Right. Um also very famous, you know what I mean? Like also um, people study him historically, try to suss out his motivations and his real personality and his, you know, whatever. Um, But when there's fandom involved too, because people like you so much, there's so many people fighting over what they want to believe about you. And, And when there's so many careers built on, people's versions of you yeah it just becomes a big muddled fucking mess at some point i mean it can't be like they they can't be anything like what we think they are right well there's so many layers to it because there's you know the essential truth whatever that is uh which is obviously changeable and you know dependent on a lot of factors but you know sort of the who the person actually is but then there's um the sort of PR version that the studio puts out. There's the fan magazine version. There's the fans version, because once the fans sort of take the PR and take all the magazine articles and all the, you know, um, label-produced profiles or whatever that come out, um, the fans are going to do with that what they will and come up with their own versions. Paul's the cute one and John's the, you know, cynical one and, you know, whatever. George is the quiet one. Like all of that, I think, is probably more sort of filtered through fans' reception. Um, And so you've got all these different layers. You've got, you know, who are they in the music, which if you just listen to the early music, you know, it's fairly up beat and it's a lot of love songs but you know then when you listen to the later music it's very different and the movie versions and like the interviews you know who are they in the interviews um and then which interviews who are they on a you know an interview with 
the New York Times versus Mad Magazine. or Like there's so many right. different versions of who they would actually be that you can't tell. You know, like there's no, yeah. there's no essential truth here. And then even relying on um, people who know them. Yeah. Obviously, like that, it, you know, everybody who knows these guys is going to have a different impression also. Like depending right. on who they get along with better, you know, who they like. You know, everybody's got a different agenda, and some people just have a different experience. Yeah, an ex-girlfriend I mean, is going to have a hell of a lot different take <laughs> yeah. than, you know, a, an elementary school friend versus, an, you know, your aunt. Versus, you know, it's all going to be different. Yeah. Versus the guy down at the office who you worked with on a project for a week or, you know. And they're all going to be, and they're all going to be right. That's the thing. Like, yeah. each one of <laughs> yeah. those things is a puzzle piece. I mean, like... You know, we're getting into Citizen Kane territory here, but like everybody's story is right. Um, yeah. It's just a piece of the puzzle. And, you know, that completed puzzle is who the person is. Um, but, you know, at least who the person is at that moment. But, you know, it, it's not really possible to ever get a complete sense of who another person is, right? In a lot of ways, these two films highlight the different strengths. Mm -hmm. of the different Beatles. Like, like we said, um, John is a very natural actor. Yeah. Very good on, on screen. I don't think either one of us is claiming that he should be winning Oscars or anything. Right. Good enough for Dick Lester to give him a smallish part in another movie he made in 1967. Oh, really? Just John. Oh, mm -hmm. nice. Um, and they got along really well too. So I think Dick Lester, um, he was very impressed with Ringo and John on screen as actors. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think he kind of was closest to John, which, you know, again, makes sense if you're a director and one of the four Beatles is, um, not that he disliked any of them, but, um, you're probably going to gravitate to the guy who's giving you the best stuff. Yeah, right? for sure. He's the one you're going to work with again. Yeah. Whereas um, Albert Mazel's seemed to be closest to Paul. Interesting. And worked with him again later. Um, and you can kind of feel that in the film too. Yeah. Because Paul is the one who pops off the screen in the Maisel's film. Yeah, he really does. He really does. He really does. And he seems, I mean, you know, of course we are only getting select moments, but that scene on the train where they're asking about the equipment, Paul is really, the, seems to be the most interested in that. He's fascinated. Yeah. And, you know, just asking the Maleses, you know, about filmmaking and about, uh, you know, taking an interest in what they're doing. So it's not just like me, 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 I'm Paul McCartney, you know, you should be interested in me. Like he's doing what yeah. a normal, decent human being does and showing an interest in other people. And um, and it's a genuine interest. It's not, yeah. he's not just paying lip service. Like he's genuinely interested in not just like the technology, but also, you know, just the filmmaking. The and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can see him sitting down and having a conversation with them uh, that's sort of genuine and two-way and not just um, self-serving. So, yeah, I can see that that McCartney, he seemed to, yeah, I, I can see why they would have really formed a bond with him. You can see that forming. Yeah. Well, and he he really got into film as sort of an interest mm -hmm. in the mid-60s, just with it, just as an amateur filmmaker. Yeah. He made a bunch of films and 
he got Antonioni to, to look at some of them. Did he really? Yeah. How did I that mean, go well, over? I don't know. I think he was. I think he just took a look at him out of yeah. curiosity because sure. he's a Beatle and stuff like that. Like Andy Warhol came over and screened a movie at his house. Nice. And stuff like that. Yeah, he was really Kenneth Anger too. Well, I don't think. I think they screened a Kenneth Anger film at his house. I don't think Kenneth Anger was there, but um, he was totally into into films in like the mid sixties. Can and you imagine having Kenneth Anger over to your house to show him <laughs> your own home movies? I mean, That's kind amazing. of, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. I think they, they had a Scorpio Rising um, screening. Damn. Nice. That's outstanding. Yeah. And he spearheaded Magical Mystery Tour, which is the movie that the Beatles make in 1967. I mean, that was his baby. Cause mm-hmm. he, he had been like an amateur filmmaker for a couple of years at that point. That's really neat. Was, anyway, yeah. So he's always been interested in filmmaking. So Paul, yeah. I mean, Paul comes off a lot better in the documentary. For sure. Yeah. Like he has a personality so, in the documentary. When I first saw the U.S. visit, I was like 17, I think. It was a huge revelation to me because, um, like I said, I, I my favorite had always been John. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, obviously I liked the other Beatles too, but I had a special, you know, soft spot for John. He was definitely my favorite. And... When I saw the first U.S. visit, it was like I had never really seen Paul candid before. Yeah, and it was it was shocking to me. Like he was breathtaking. You know? Yeah, like his personality so fucking cute. Honestly, like the reason that I loved John Lennon was because of all that stuff we talked about. Because he was funny and he was a clown. Mm-hmm. He, you know, did funny dances and funny voices and stuff like that. You know. Um, all of which is, you know, still true. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the U.S. visit, I was like, oh, shit, Paul's really funny, too. Yeah. Really quick witted. And and there's just something so sweet about him. He comes across as very earnest. Very earnest. And like he did all those things, too. Like he did all the funny voices. He Mm -hmm. had a great like sense of humor. Like I'd never really seen a platform for him to like show that off before. Yeah. Because. In the Beatles, it's almost like everybody has their prescribed role. Right. And he just kind of seemed shoved into a box as a Beatle. Mm-hmm. Based on the stuff that I had seen, my whole understanding of the Beatles had been formed by either their albums, like you said, but plus these these movies where Paul doesn't really shine at all. Right. And then a bunch of John Lennon solo stuff, which doesn't even feature him. Right. I would occasionally see an interview or something, but that that's just him giving an interview. Mm-hmm. So this was, like I said, this was the first time that I, that I actually got to see him being jubilant and joyful. And that was the movie that turned him into my favorite. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's hard to get around this sort of feeling that you're supposed to like John Lennon the best, I guess. And maybe that's shaped yeah. by the fact that, you know, you and I sort of came into our Beatles consciousness around the time <laughs> or somewhat after John Lennon is shot. Yeah, and yeah. so he becomes really sort of deified at that point. Yeah. And, um, but even before then, there's the sense that John Lennon is the craftsman. He's the one who's writing the serious, like, 
Like, uh-huh. like his music is good and John's and Paul's music is poppy and, um, you know, sort of light and it's, you know, just fluffy. I don't know the right word to describe it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like you get this feeling. It's not as deep. Or- <clears throat> yeah. You like John's the deep one and Paul yeah. is the pop one or something. And you get this feeling that like, if you like Paul the best, that somehow makes you a shallow person. Right. So, you have to defend it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. And, um, and you know, and I can say that without, <laughs> without the movies to back that up. Like that's just kind of right. the impression yeah. that you get in our culture. Like they're, those persona have taken on such a life of their own, uh, even outside the films, but there's so much, they're so completely shaped by the films and, you know, like you can, it's really fascinating to see kind of the genesis of that. Um, and obviously yeah. they're, they're like the, the seeds of those eventual persona are, uh, come from their own personalities, um, right. in the, the writing of a hard day's night, which is based on, you know, like you said, the screenwriter spent a lot of time with the Beatles, uh, and, and based their characters on their personalities, but, but a hard day's night, especially, I think, you know, really kind of formed the basis of, of what their personalities were that then defines them for like the rest of their careers. Uh, yeah. That's, that's what I'm trying okay. to figure out too, is like, when I mean, I guess there's no moment, you know, like everything else. And, and I don't even think it's deliberate. I think it just kind of ha- it was just sort of snowballed. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely we talk about it on our show and other people have talked about it, too, which is that after the breakup, like the the Beatles breakup is really kind of when things really went into camps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, really became Lennon versus McCartney. Yeah. Whereas before it was Lennon and McCartney, not yeah. even an and in the middle. It was like Lennon slash McCartney. Right. And then all of a sudden it was like, you got to choose sides. Yeah. And it was harder to be on Paul's side. Yeah. Because to to be on John's side was to prove that you cared about like truthful, honest expression of pain and, you know, you were deep. Whereas if you were Paul, you just didn't care about anything and you just made sappy music for right. grandmas or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that really skewed things for, for decades, you know. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, like I said, my impressions were partially formed by books but they were but they were also kind of formed or maybe um, reinforced by the movies, which is why I, I think it's a good idea to sort of look back at the films and see what they contributed to mm-hmm. this image forming. I agree. Yeah, it's number one in Cashbox and Billboard. I thought George Harrison was goofier in the Maisel's film, too. For sure, yeah. He doesn't really register much in the in A Hard Day's Night. Like, he's, I mean, he, he registers. But, yeah, you don't get a lot of personality he's, out of him. Yeah, he's, he's, it's true. He's just like a haircut and a jawline. Yeah. He just stands around <laughs> looking handsome. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's much more relaxed in the Maisel's film. But he seems so young. He just seems like a baby, uh, you know, and he's really looking yeah. to the others um, for kind of what to do and how to behave. And he's, I mean, like, he's definitely happy to take a back seat to them um, and yeah. kind of yeah. let them do their thing. But um, but he keeps up with them. I mean, the scene in Miami in the hotel room where he's playing the guitar yeah. and they're kind of goofing around is just a lot of fun. In, in Maisel's, 
I never got the vibe that John was the leader because Paul did a hundred percent of the stage chatter. Mm-hmm. He counted the band off right. every time, and he sang most of the songs too. Yeah, like I don't think either movie really had one person. I mean, if you look at a hard day's night. The very beginning of the movie starts out with Paul kind of being the leader in a way because the other three are running from the girls and Paul is there with his fake beard. Yeah, and he's the one that waiting for them. Yeah, and he's up. the one that gets him onto the train. Um but then, you know, they each kind of have their own thing going on. Yeah. So you don't get a moment in the Yeah, song. you don't really get a sense of anybody being the leader in a hard day's night. I don't think. I didn't get that sense. And then in um the Males' movie, no, I don't think I mean, I didn't really get a sense of anybody necessarily being a leader, a clear leader in that. I mean, there are bigger personalities than others, but yeah. I didn't get a sense of any kind of like hierarchy within the band. I didn't either. Really in either one, but yeah. certainly not in, in Maisel's. No. I mean, it's, not, it's not as if there's one beetle who goes around and tells everybody else what to do and they go, yes, sir. No, not at all. I, I mean, the only reason I bring it up is because it's it's a very hotly debated topic in um, with Beetle Bros. Mm-hmm. It's not even debated. It's just, it's literally just a lot of guys, their favorite subject is how John was the leader. Like that's, that's all they like to talk about. Right. Again, you know, based on sort of a hard day's night, mm-hmm. which everybody saw right? versus the Maisel's special that ran on Thursday night or whatever. Right. Which one, few people once. saw. Yeah. <laughs> I would probably expect Paul to be professional. Mm-hmm. John to be silly and witty and funny. And Ringo to be kind of affable and George to be kind of quiet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get that. And, you know, of course, like these movies didn't exist in a vacuum. And so the people who would have watched these movies would also be consuming news articles and fan magazines and TV interviews and like so much other media that is bombarding the public with the Beatles' personalities. And a lot of that, at least, um, news uh, interviews, you would think would be closer to the males' version of their personalities because it's not like this scripted a hard day's night version. Whereas the fan magazine interviews would probably be closer to a hard day's night because that's more of like a PR-shaped version of who they are. So... It's, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting dichotomy because you have, you know, the more sort of sanitized PR version and then you have the more, um, and I'm not really unsanitized, but at least, um, uh, you know, genuine, I guess, version of who they are that they would be presenting uh, in interviews and in the first U.S. tour. You know what? You would expect that. Yes. But I think what actually happened was the opposite. Oh. Because, and I say I say this having watched a zillion hours of footage on the Beatles and having read a zillion uh, print interviews, but actually because of John's, because of his like quick wit and his ability to, you know, give us a, a zinger, as it were, press conferences are kind of where he 
shined. Right. He was best live answering um, reporters and kind of the bigger the audience, the better, you know? Yeah. I think John performed really well under those circumstances, which is not to say that Paul wasn't good, but he was less like he is in the Maisels, right? Where he's sort of happy and exuberant and, you know, funny. He's less like that at, at press conferences where he's he's much more self-conscious, controlled, and because there's cameras and, and because he's being recorded. So he's less like that. Yeah. Whereas he comes across a lot better on paper, Paul. He's a lot more thoughtful. Yeah, yeah, I can see like, that. Because, you know, also on paper, he's not having to shout over anybody, you know, whether that's reporters right. or the, his bandmates or whatever. Like, he has a chance to get his thoughts actually out. So that, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. Yes. And he doesn't have cameras on him, which is, he's very camera conscious. Yeah. Like, most of us are. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. Sure. And then, oddly enough, often the teen magazines reflected better journalism than look or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. Were. I, I'm going to assume it's because they had women interviewing them <laughs> for the team. Oh, magazines. could be. And they were taking them probably more seriously, you know, whereas maybe some of the uh, more serious, uh, you know, newspapers or magazines maybe were kind of looking down their noses at yeah. them a little bit. There might've been a little yeah. bit of that. Whereas the teen magazines, like this is their bread and butter, so they're gonna they're gonna take this rock band seriously because this is what their audience wants, and maybe they respect their audience a little bit more. And some, you know, again, some of them are more just more interesting than the stupid press conferences and stuff. Yeah, like we got a we got a glimpse of the attitude of the types of people who are asking them questions, shouting questions at them, and taking their picture. Yeah, in the Maisel's documentary, and it's not—it's not exactly a friendly. You know, I think it got more friendly over time once people really liked him, and then they tried to play with him, and well, because you know, then then they want then it got to a point where they wanted funny answers at a press conference, but they were still asking him stupid fucking questions. Yeah, you know, like they couldn't really play with the Beatles because they weren't smart enough or funny <laughs> enough. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, as they got more famous, obviously you know, the ass kissing begins, but also like, you know, this is, I think at a time when you've still like that kind of irreverent youth culture is still seen as sort of disrespectful. Like, how dare you speak that way to your elders, you know, show me some respect. And so I think a lot of it was probably, you know, these like 50 year old uh, journalists like just saying, who the hell is this twenty-two-year-old mouthing off to me? Like if <laughs> yeah. I, if we were at home, I'd smack you across the face. <laughs> like you kind of get that feeling from them. Like the, just this this feeling of I should be respected, which is just like it's a cultural thing, you know. Like um, yeah. you know the the older generation, uh, you know, up until the sixties, the older generation was to be respected. Um, because they were the older generation and starting in the sixties, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, this isn't new to the sixties, every, you know, younger generation revolts and, uh, to some extent against the older generation. But in the sixties, you really get like this wholesale rejection of, um, their parents' values and, you know, this, this sort of irreverent 
attitude um, that you see in the Beatles, and you definitely see it in A Hard Day's Night. Um, and I can see the the reporters who are of the parents' generation, for the most part, um, just not liking that. Like, what's what's the youth today coming to? What are all oh, these kids yeah. today have no respect for their elders? Whereas, as you mentioned with the teen magazines, maybe the writers are younger. Certainly, the audience is younger. Yeah. So you know, they're a little bit more um, forgiving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah like yeah. they're more accepting of this attitude because they understand that, you know, the Beatles are not juvenile delinquents. <laughs> like they're, yeah, yeah. you know, they're, they're just sort of fun and carefree and that that's okay. Whereas, you know, maybe the New York Times photographer who would rather be off, you know, documenting the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe they're kind of um, a little bit <laughs> more salty about having to be there uh, and being, you know, put down by these these young ruffians with their long hair. On that note. Thank you, listeners. This concludes the first episode of Through the ACOM Lens. We hope you enjoyed it. Kristen, do you have any anything else you want to add? I don't think so. I don't think that I have ever, I can guarantee that I've never spoken for this long straight about the Beatles. I didn't know I had this many thoughts about the Beatles. It's fun, isn't it? It is. It's super fun. I want to watch more of the movies now. Excellent. Great. Okay, well, thank you so very much for coming on and talking to me. You are so very welcome. I I hope that you come on again. I would love to. talk about another movie. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, I'll cook something up and uh, we'll get going on another, another film sometime soon. Outstanding. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our podcast. We really appreciate all of your tweets, likes, comments, shares, and reviews. So please be sure to follow us on Twitter at ACOM Podcast, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. To help more inquisitive students of the Beatles find us, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating or review on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 